What's his estate like where we're going? Oh, it's aristocratic, that's for sure. There aren't many mansions these days that can afford the luxury of hiring a chambermaid, a kitchen cook, majordomo, gardener, a professor, and a chauffeur. It'll do the girl good to live in the country. It doesn't sound too attractive, though, to me. What happened? How do I know? Excuse me if I seem anxious to arrive, but I want to sleep in a bed. The trip's beginning to get tiresome. We've gone almost a day and a half without any rest. You're the only one of us who shouldn't talk of discomfort. Because when I arrive, there await for me a pair of young devils to whom I have to teach mathematics. And as always, grammar. You're expecting a good salary, though, aren't you? I'll bet you anything you get paid better than me. <laughs> Ladies' maids grow scarcer every day, while private tutors are dying of hunger. Uh, and don't exaggerate. You think this tin can can make the whole trip? Punish the righteous. The curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control. I love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find it. It doesn't sound too attractive, though, to me. Hello and welcome to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are here for another episode of Beyond Nashy, the uh, the occasional episodes that we do based around other science... Oh, I'm sorry, science fiction. Good lord, where am I now? <laughs> other Spanish horror films that do not involve Senor Nashy directly, but uh, often involve quite a number of his co-stars and cohorts behind the camera and in front of it. Indeed. This month, we will be talking to you about uh, one that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, The Vampire's Night Orgy. One of the great exploitation titles ever. <laughs> I know, I know. We've talked before about some of, the, uh, some of the, the alternate titles of different movies at different times, and it's really it, this is another one of those where it's really hard to imagine an American distributor looking at that title and going... You know, I'm not sure it's going to get butts on seats. Yeah, it's just not exploitative enough. <laughs> right, right, right. So I think what we have here is uh, the the uh, near-perfect example of titling for mm -hmm. drive-in fare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, something that would definitely get people to uh, plunk down their two bucks and mm -hmm. think that it might get that uh, beautiful young thing to uh, cling to you in the night as the vampires attacked. <laughs> so... This is a this is a, this is a great little film, and uh, I, I have to admit I had not rewatched this movie in a very long time. Mm -hmm. Now you knew the film already; you knew Vampires Night Orgy. You had seen it before this, right? Um, actually, yes, but not that long ago. I mean, it, I had not seen it like years ago. You know, I'd oh, actually okay. not I'd always heard of it, but I'd never actually come across it. So I had watched it. Oh, you know, a year or so ago. Oh, that and, recently? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's still pretty, but it was, uh, and, I, and, and I was really excited to do this show, to come back and view it again, uh, to be ready for the show. But I did watch it a couple of years ago, 
And uh, yeah, so uh, but yeah, I know you go back a lot further with it. There, actually, watching, having seen it. Yeah, yeah, had a bootleg videotape of it uh, back in the nineties. Uh, watched watched that several times. It's um, it's 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 great. We'll, it was as we discussed the film. Of course, we'll talk about uh, the uh, the attributes that would have you rewatch this particular film. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about breasts, people, <laughs> but uh, the. Uh, the when I got heart when I got hot and heavy interested in uh, Eurohorror, this would have been on the, uh, admittedly on the, I guess you'd say the lighter side of the Eurohorror genre, because I was kind of just taking a bath in all of it, just yeah. as you know, just grabbing as many as I could and watching them and watching them and watching them. So you watch something along the lines of uh, say Fulci's, you know, yeah, four four famous ones sure. next to something like this from mm. a full decade before. Mm. Well, most you know, well, at least seven or eight years before, and it's certainly it's not uh, it's not the hard hitting you know zombie romp of zombie or the yeah. the, the out eye gouging hideousness of it doesn't go of, for the extremes yeah of the yeah zombie and cannibal films of the Italians or whatever so right yeah. right but it's it's a complete it, it, it's a, it's a completely wonderful uh, type of horror film and it is distinctly a Euro horror kind of thing. But uh, its its flavor is of a much more delicate and nuanced type mm-hmm. than uh, the kind of club you over the head stuff that <laughs> yeah, would come later. Very much so. Very much so. And uh, that's one of the great things about uh, the Euro cult stuff, especially uh, especially when you start talking about the Euro horror stuff, is there are so many different uh, little little genres, different uh, one would almost say almost say different flavors. Within the genre, mm. so uh, I mean, beyond the, I mean, we we often talk about how different the Spanish produced horror films are from, say, the Italian ones, mm-hmm. and there is a bit of overlap because there are a lot of Italian Spanish co productions. Yeah, but the uh, the the Spanish ones did have a tendency to lean more along the lines of what Nashi was doing and be more monster films than gore films mm-hmm. to a large degree mm-hmm. not that uh, you know not that the werewolf films didn't have their own share of you know blood and occasionally guts but the uh the uh the violence was uh was always creepily laid out and kind of smothered in atmosphere and in in, in italian films the atmosphere was there, but it was a really different tinge. It's almost like uh, yeah. very different fog machines. I don't know. <laughs> well, know? I was going to say it's like they they both started from they go both started from the same starting point. You know, classic horror, gothic, yeah, classic horror. And through the '60s, the Italians, I think, still very much kept to a lot of the that that classic kind of feel, even though they were stretching the boundaries in terms of of sexuality and that sort of thing. Well, Seems they, like the they were Spanish... definitely aping the the Hammer yeah. films, the yeah. very successful Hammer films too. Yeah. So. Whereas I think the Spanish even though they also brought in the kind of 70s cinema, what it was doing as far as uh, the, the freedom of expression that was coming in, they also, and freedom of what you could show and get away with, I think they stuck a little closer to hanging on to some of those gothic tropes than the Italian films once they moved to the 70s, I think, became a little more modernized in their settings, yeah. their stories. You know, you still had the occasional foggy graveyard, you know, but it was, but I think that they were, they, they weren't quite, it wasn't quite the blend I think the Spanish films still kept of uh, of uh, putting eroticism and, and gore, but still trying to kind of give it a classic horror sort of feel. There. Yeah, there's a very different feel to, say, the Blind Dead of Blind mm. Dead films of Amanda Amando Diosorio and uh, the Paul Nashi monster movies, and uh, the various various other films. I mean, like Last Beyond Nashi, we talked about Murder Mansion, mm-hmm. and it's very hard for me to imagine that movie as it sits being made in Italy. Right. It just yeah. the, yeah. the 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 uh, 
uh, restraint is probably the wrong word, but it's just mm-hmm. a kind of story that wouldn't really have been produced yeah. really uh, in mm-hmm. Italy at the time. Mm-hmm. It would have been uh, they would have been producing a, you know at, at the time that Murder Mansion and this film, yeah, uh, Vampires Night Orgy was produced in 1974. They were leaning very much heavily toward uh, bloodier and bloodier giallo mm-hmm. films. Uh, crime films, uh, the Palachetzi uh, yeah. genre, the the crime genre, and uh, that was really the kind of the, the the influence there was toward that as a big thing as the spaghetti western you know really really waned yeah. in the early seventies, and so these types of uh, creepy gothic is the wrong word because it's uh, this film and murder mansion of course contemporary films set set in the the time period in which they were made so it's not the kind of thing that really feels um it really feels well actually that brings up something that maybe well they're both very affected both films are very affected by past events right right by the history of where they're at exactly and there's a <clears throat> there's almost a foreboding sense of the past being a part of the present and kind mm-hmm. of encroaching on it at mm-hmm. times. Yeah. And uh, actually, I'll just go ahead and say this. One of the neater things that I want to talk about when we get into discussing the uh, the finer points of Vampire's Night Orgy is that uh, if you pay attention to, that, to Vampire's Night Orgy, it would be very easy to have re- reset the entire movie to take place a full hundred years before mm. in the mm. 1880s. 1870s, 1880s, mm-hmm. and you would have just changed the clothing, changed the, the changed the automobile to yeah. a stagecoach, and then, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. The bus, the bus would have been a stagecoach. Right. Yeah. The car would have yeah. been a horse, sure. you know, and that would have been the end of it. And so, what you have is, um, in a lot of ways, a timeless story. And uh, some of the some of the Italian horror films produced at the time could you the same could be said of them, mm-hmm. but a lot of them really couldn't be. When you start getting into the the late seventies. And you start talking about things like um, the Beyond and, and Zombie yeah. and things yeah. of that nature. No, those are thoroughly modern horror movies mm-hmm. that use you know they, they may use imagery and ideas that stretch back to the mm-hmm. dawn of man, but yeah. the the settings are aggressively modern. Yeah, and um, it, it, it's 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 uh, the only one of them that uh, the only one of like those classic uh, Fulci films, especially that I can see comfortably fitting into another time period. Would be maybe the house by the cemetery. I was going to say that house by the cemetery yeah. maybe would be the closest. I think so. But uh, the, yeah. the the others, uh, zombie wouldn't really work. I mean, because mm-hmm. it, it's it, it you know it goes from it goes from New York to uh, yeah uh, to the Caribbean and mm-hmm. and the beyond really needs to be. I mean, you could argue that maybe it could have been, but I don't really see how it would work because mm-hmm. it it's it already starts off a hundred years before, and then yeah. the whole point of it is that this is something happening in modern day being mm-hmm. affected by the past directly. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the uh, the beauty of a lot of the Spanish horror films, um, not even the not even just the nasty ones, is that they seem very much to be Modern in setting, but classic in style, mm-hmm. and uh, that is very yeah. true of this film. Yeah, and it's a real joy to see these kind of things because uh, the the phrase uh, they don't make them like that anymore. Boy, does that apply? <laughs> yeah, it really does apply. It, it's it, this is a this is a great example of they don't make them like that no more. Right. So and we should mention that this is a return of our friend, uh, old friend uh, Leon Klamowski, the director. Uh, uh, we've covered many yep. Klamowski films uh, that he did with Nashi and others, and. Uh, 
Uh, Eventually, it appears we're going to cover them all. I was about to say, so. you know, it's, we never get tired of doing a, doing Klamowski films. They're always Certainly interesting. Not. Always interesting. But uh, I, I wanted to uh, t- wanted to take time out to mention that. Uh, speak. Speaking of uh, modern films versus older films, uh, I recently got out to the theater to catch a, uh, a a film. Well, a couple of things first. Yeah. Um, I recently saw a couple of modern day horror films. One of which was has been kind of critically acclaimed, and one of which kind of flew so far under the radar that I was just kind of shocked and went, "Oh well, it's at the mm-hmm. it's at the cheap theater. I'll go see it. I've got the time." The uh, the really really good one that uh, I think is kind of instructive. Uh, in uh, how creative and interesting uh, modern horror films can be is uh, the movie It Follows. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of good stuff about this. I, I won't spoil fascinating. I won't spoil anything at all because I know you haven't seen it and I'm sure a lot of people who will be listening to this haven't seen it yet either, but it's, it is an utterly fascinating film. It, uh, it is very interesting in that uh, it, it is very, um, it's very well done. It's a very carefully paced film mm-hmm. so that when the horrific sequences happen it's not it's not as if they sneak up on you it's just that, that the suspense has built so effectively mm-hmm. and those quiet moments have allowed you to get inside the heads of the characters so well that those shock moments are that much more effective you start you you learn the you learn the character motivations and the character mm-hmm. the character mm-hmm. relationships yeah. uh, well enough to understand why everybody's doing what they're doing when shit starts to go to hell. Wow, wow. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very good film. It's, a, it's got a, a lot of talk. There's been a lot of talk about its score, and uh, I've, I've kind of described it. Uh, the score for it follows as the kind of score that uh, uh, would be perfectly natural if everybody attempted to follow John Carpenter's lead in how to score a horror film. Mm, mm, uh, it's very wow. much in that vein. Cool. Uh, very, very, very well done. It's quite good. The other film I saw at the the cheap theater, the second run theater, uh, is a movie called The Lazarus Effect, and unfortunately, it turns out to suck. No, oh, does it? Uh, I, I yeah. think I remember hearing. I believe I do remember hearing about that. Yeah, or, it's not or remembering it's the title. I don't know anything about it. Really, not good. Huh? It's a shame. It's got a it's got a good idea. At it's uh-huh. it's got a good premise. I like uh-huh. the I like the uh, the idea at its center. The the idea of uh, Scientists attempting to uh, extend life right at the end, right, extend life uh, right at the end of uh, uh, traumatic experiences mm. uh, to give surgeons and doctors, you know, more time to try to save people. Mm. Uh, good idea. Mm. I like the I like the, the the way it's written and to 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 make the uh, the research project they're involved in very believable. Uh, I like the cast, um, but the the, the film. Mm. Is really kind of a flat line all the way through. Mm-hmm. It's it, I, it's the perfect kind of film where it's about an hour. And, I think it's an hour and twenty three minutes long. Yeah. And by about the hour mark, I was like, this movie's going to end up being about a five out of ten. Yeah. This is not. I mean, yeah. it's it's not horrible. It's not great. But then you get to the last few minutes, the last few minutes of the film, and honestly, it was like, okay, this thing just fell off a cliff because this ending. <laughs> This oh. ending feels like the third choice oh. when, when they were they filmed like two or three yeah. different endings, yeah, and tested them. Yeah, of course, but they, this they, is the they one that seems the like they went with. Put them in the old test audience. That, that's just like, that's oh just a guess. God. That's yeah, just a guess right. on my yeah. part because the ending that they have seems to negate some of the things that are actually in the movie, yeah, and it's that kind of thing where okay, so you decided to just shoot the narrative in the face 
for uh, an ending that you thought was going to make people leave the theater going, wow, that ending was amazing. It's like, no, you kind of fucked it up. Is there any worse, out of all the horrible things that are things that Hollywood does, their, their normal methods of releasing a film, is there anything more detrimental and just more of a bad idea than the friggin' test audience? You know, it's like well, that. I, I, yes, I would agree with you, except that I've heard from a lot of different filmmakers that is actually beneficial. Film, that they, once you accept it and know when to say no... Yeah, well, sure. That's what it comes down to. You that, have to. that can actually help you yeah. figure out where... Because the filmmakers honestly describe it sometimes like this. You get so close to the damn thing. Everybody right. involved yeah. is yeah. so close to the damn thing. Mm-hmm. And you can't really trust that if you go get a friend or two and, ha- and show it mm-hmm. to them, that they're mm-hmm. going to be the right yeah. audience for it mm-hmm. because they're your friends. Or they, mm-hmm. they know, wow, he's been working on this for seven months. Yeah. So having a test audience come in and see it completely cold and watching their reactions, you may not change. It, it, mm. it, it will give you the idea of, okay, I don't need that scene mm-hmm. or, oh boy, we really need more information mm. here because they didn't understand this plot point yeah. and things like that. So it's another tool that I think yeah. it, used, it used to be something that long ago, it was something that was forced on filmmakers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a way, by producers trying wanting mm-hmm. wanting to have a tool to use to force filmmakers to mm-hmm. make a film more commercial or to make it to, to essentially kind of dumb it down. But good fil- good filmmakers can use anything to their own effect, to their own yeah. to, to their own to their own benefit. And they actually, uh, I've heard a lot of filmmakers talk about how mm-hmm. they were able to, to their mind, fix the end of the film or fix the the midpoint of a film to make the ending more effective or to make mm. the story clearer. And so it's like any other tool, but mm. damn, it can be misused a yeah. lot. It well, really yeah, can I mean, be I know. Well, it's just, I just feel like if, you know, any, any given theater audience that I normally set in, I look around, I would, I would have to think if I was a filmmaker, it would be terrifying to think of my <laughs> film. Yeah. Think of some yeah. jerkwad sitting and texting through my film. And then at the end of it, filling out something like, Oh, it's stupid. You know, it was boring. You know, it needs more action. <laughs> He's right there saying, nothing you know, happened. Nothing happened. It's like really nothing happened. Yeah. You watched a movie for an hour and a half, and you you claim nothing happened. Yeah. Here's what didn't happen. Yeah. You didn't look at the fucking screen. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 I know. But <laughs> eh, what are you gonna do? Yeah. The uh, people are always. I, I love. I love pointing this out. People are always bitching and moaning about man. The current state of horror is for shit. Mm-hmm. Man, oh, all yeah, horror right. movies that come out now just <laughs> suck. And it's like. No, not all of them suck. No, no. not all of them. No. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of shit out there. Yeah, because it's still the genre genre that more movies probably get made in that genre yeah. than any other movie every year with the whole direct to DVD, direct to Netflix, and all this stuff. I mean, right. it's like there's still probably more horror films made every and and just how much the independent filmmakers, most first time filmmakers, gravitate to horror. You know, because it's so easy to do a zombie film or a vampire, you know, relatively easy. And, you yep. know, as far as doing something that you can do for a low budget and not too heavily special effects yep. dependent, as opposed to like trying to do science fiction or something like that or a period piece. Right. Because horror has a built in audience. Yeah. You you know, doing your Holocaust drama may or may not be a good first move for mm-hmm. a filmmaker. It's yeah. really, you know, honestly, mm-hmm. maybe you're not really going to sell mm-hmm. that film. Yeah. But a horror film has a built in audience. Mm-hmm. Because people like me who are just who just love the idea and the you know mm-hmm. have the constant hope of a, a fresh new horror experience, yeah. we're gonna go check it out. That's why I paid two dollars to go see the Lazarus Effect. Sure, walked because out going, you wanted you were well, that was a piece of shit. Chance, you know? Yeah, there's always the chance that yeah it could be you know 
could could be meat, could be cake. Who the yeah. hell knows, right? Well, you know, actually, I think really getting back to de- what's detrimental to modern horror movies, really, probably it's still probably the the suits that are running the studios are probably still more detrimental to your normal, oh, I agree, your average film yeah. than the test audience. Uh, case in point, I, I was watching the uh, for the first time. There's a movie I only saw for the first time uh, recently was the Mystery Science Theater movie. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, I had no idea how much that was just totally fucked with by the uh, by by the the studio heads, you know, who they had to make the film with, and just the the, the making of on, on the disc is just really eye opening. What they had to they go had to through, ch- they, they had to, the, the film is so short, and they had to. Oh my god! And the they, stuff they, they, they had, had to, to cut they had, was just the like, things they had to cut. the the jo- The fact that they had to to be very careful about the jokes because the jokes had to be something that they that. The execs thought that a broad audience would understand, well, one the, to, and yeah. they had to space the jokes out. Well, one of the funniest jokes in the whole thing that Danny was one of the ones they had to cut was the first time you see the Metaluna mutant, and somebody's and one of the guys says hey, it's Bootsy Collins, you know, which yeah, which is just hysterical. But because one of the suits didn't know who Bootsy Collins was, they had to change it to like Imelda Marcos or some sort of reference like that that oh, wasn't yeah. near I think as it was near Ivana as, Trump. Maybe that was it, Ivana Trump. I know, I don't even something that wasn't that. anywhere yeah, near yeah. as funny as when you look at the Metaluna mutant and think yeah. Bootsy Collins is hilarious. So yeah, that was really depressing to like you know to realize you know just uh, you know because I wonder when I saw the time I was like this is a seventy five minute movie you know it's a short oh, no, they the episode. shit out of it and uh, so anyway but well uh, it's like the old story of Army of Darkness about how that was one of the shortest released films in years mm-hmm. by a major studio and it's because they just hacked away at it and hacked away at it and hacked away at it because the the studio had absolutely no faith in it yeah and it's like when you finally see oh yeah when you finally see well i mean years ago i picked up yeah, the, the extended yeah the, the, the full-length version of the film and you see this 93 minute wonderful thing and yeah. i'm sorry but i happen to prefer the original ending the the, the, the dystopia oh, I do I do post-apocalyptic ending yeah, I, do too. I know it doesn't give us the little s-mart joke at the yeah, end yeah which is funny which, but no i prefer the original ending i, I do, do too i think that's just, just a wonderful film that mm. way and you think to yourself wow so executives looked at this finished yeah. film yeah. and decided ah we need another ending yeah <laughs> really you weren't laughing your ass off at the fact that this guy's such a dumbass he's Constantly, up that bad? totally, like just repeatedly fucked everything he does. I know is, that's it's part a, of the jokes of Ash. You have a joke about that character, you know. That would have been the perfect ending to the series. <laughs> yeah. Where he's like, he fucked himself so bad that <laughs> yeah. he's overshot his own time. Yeah. He's in a post-apocalyptic future. Yeah. We hope you all have seen the ending, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah sorry if you if you've not if, seen if you've the not actual seen it, ending, hit the rewind, go back and erase the part. Yeah, you just don't don't to. listen to what we just said. Is, I guess probably <laughs> the best advice I can give. Now everybody's listening to this has seen that movie. Come on, everybody knows. That. I, 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 I hope so. I mean, yeah, I hope so too. Maybe not. I mean, probably people are not going to write in and go, what is this film on your darkness you speak bags. of? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks, asshole. <laughs> that was next to my Netflix queue, and I just had to you cancel it. You're such a it, dick. <laughs> what do you mean there's two versions? We hope you all talk like that, too. That's how we imagine you all talking. <laughs> Even you in other countries all talk like are that. Are you saying That's that we're, we're <laughs> accidentally insulting our listenership? <laughs> oh, shit. I didn't mean to do that. Well, I can just imagine what their parodies of us must sound like. And I'd, and I'd rather just imagine. I don't want to hear them. Like <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. It was probably the... They'd probably know. come on and talk like this. Hey, I'm Troy and Rod, and I'm Rod Barnett. From the, That's us. We're just a couple us. of southern boys. We don't know how to speak Spanish. You know? Yep. I got some I got some tobacco in my Joe. I'm good. You want to talk about a movie? Fuck, I guess we better, because right. boy, have we fucking babbled <laughs> endlessly here. Folks, if you thought we stayed on track in the past and and, yeah. and, and have been very good about uh, not going off on divergent tangents, oh boy, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to quite go this long. Folks, I'll tell you what, we'll take a quick break. Oh, one quick thing. Yes. I did want to thank uh, listener Mike, who a couple of months ago 
Uh, once again, he did his what he referred to as his annual donation to help defray the costs of uh, the podcast, uh, and that was very sweet of Mike. We yes. we love him and we thank him quite a, all over again. And we want to remind everybody uh, this is a good opportunity. Anytime is a good opportunity to head over to the Nashi Cast website or over to the Bloody Pit of Rod and click that donate button yeah. and send us a dollar or two just I to like help to defray, to defray the cost of uh, hosting this podcast. Well, I liked your your title for it, Begging for Dollars. That's good. It's, it's <laughs> yes. like it's similar to the old uh, movie dialing, afternoon movie Dialing for Dollars that we grew up with you know, here, except <laughs> in that case they would call a random person and, and the person had a chance to win money. You don't get that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. We're, we're simply begging, begging that you send dollars, us yeah. money to help us defray the cost of yeah. the hosting of this sucker. Because uh, we got a lot of podcasts up there, uh, hours upon hours of listening to two morons babble about mm-hmm. Spanish horror movies, and now apparently Godzilla movies. Mm-hmm. So please, if you can spare the shekels, send us a few. All right. Thank That's you very good. much. We'll be back in a moment. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science fiction, horror, and fantasy movies but how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this shit for half a century hi my name is terry frost and i do the martian driving podcast a podcast where i look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century i look at fantasy horror and science fiction and talk about them sometimes with the guests sometimes by myself but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar if it was ever on your radar so go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or type Martian Drive-In Podcast into iTunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre talk. And keep watching the skies. It conquered the world. The most terrifying monster the mind of man can conceive. Spreading panic, making of men murderers, making of women terrified slaves. It conquered the world. See two blood-freezing horror pictures. It conquered the world and the she-creature. Why have you stopped? Mm. Hey, which direction do we take? Well, you take the one to the left, of course. We're going to Bajoni and not a... Tonia. To Bajoni, there's some 110 kilometers. To Tonia, only about 10. Yeah, and? Marcus. Ernest is only suggesting that we get some sleep in Tonia and refresh the bus and ourselves. Very well, let's go. On to Tonia, then. 
The Vampire's Night Orgy, 1974. Spanish-Italian co-production. Mm-hmm. And uh, looks to me to take place in Italy. Would that be wrong? Like northern Italy? Well, here's what... Um Here's what I wrote down because I wanted to write this down because uh, um, my gosh, the locations are just as in most Euro horror, just fantastic uh, uh, where they're filmed at now. But what it says is uh, looks to me like Spanish because okay, because it says filmed in and it lists about five places: Talamanca del Arama, Cesena, um, Toriana y Patones, something like that. Uh, Toraguna y Patones. Um, Anyway, yeah, you're right. One, these are all things that there's all about these five locations. Do look to be yeah. uh, around around Spain. So you're yeah. right. So I'm yeah. guessing this would be a uh, yeah. You're right. This would have to be a Spanish location. Okay. All right. All right. And as you know, I got to be honest. As soon as I started to see this location, this first opening shot that takes shows through this uh, village where the story is going to take place, I thought for sure that it was the same village that was same place that was used for uh, Return of the Evil Dead. You know, the second Blind Dead film. But right. then when I looked up that specifics i didn't see in the same places so i think it's just that in spain you know you just look down the street and there's places like this i mean they're just abundance everywhere <coughs> cool locations just just you know that's that's one of the things that the european horror or european filmmakers just uh, have such a great access to or just the, the most awesome well the thing is knowing that this is a, a spanish italian co-production it didn't mm-hmm. I, my original thought was okay so it's set what looks to be like northern Italy, mm-hmm. but now you're right. Okay, obviously it was shot in Spain, so I'm assuming the place names are are something that uh, would be Spanish in origin, which is which is all well and good. But at the same time, there was that thing in the back of my mind going, <laughs> was this still during the time yeah. when Spanish horror films couldn't take place in Spain because horrible things like that just don't happen in in Franco Spain? <laughs> yeah, there's always that. The, well, the like town the is called of, Tonya, right? Is, right, is it's right. T-O-N-I-A, it's like, Remember so. Tombs of the Blind, oh, Blind sure, Dead yeah. took place in Portugal in Portugal of course and of course you know you can't have a Spanish werewolf so he has to be he has to be Polish so gosh I almost feel like um, almost feel like uh, maybe it is I, I almost feel like in the description of this though that it does list it as being something other than Spain like the uh, maybe we're like Portugal or something where this is supposed to take place but I, could, <laughs> I don't know I could be, maybe I, don't I am know. confusing it with the blind dead uh, but um, I mean generally it just says Small European town. Small European town, yeah. We'll just take it as given that uh, this will not happen in Spain. This is, uh, <laughs> of course not. not. But, this. but it, do, it does lend itself to the to yet another in the long line of uh, horror films, much like the universal horror mm. films that take places in some place vaguely in Europe yeah. where everybody speaks English yeah. with an American <laughs> accent in general. So. But uh, yeah, this, uh, this uh, place is, is just incredible looking. Uh, the streets and the, the shapes of the town. Oh, I, you know, just, oh, I know. Just it's amazing little... It's, I mean, again, it's just one of those things where these guys had half the work done for them. You just had to turn on the camera and point, and yeah. you got an automatic image, automatic atmosphere, automatic, just great. Calling great it calling it a rustic <laughs> uh, European country village uh, should basically conjure up exactly what this is, which is there are no real paved roads. Yeah. Uh, the the place looks like what it is, which is a, a village that grew up. Uh, out of being near probably a water source and some mm. decent farmland, yeah, with no real plan. There's there's not a there's not a, an inch of asphalt within ten miles of it. Yeah, and, and um, you're not sure the sun ever shines here, and that the uh, you're not you're thinking maybe it just rains every day, you know, <laughs> which is actually part of the plot, which you're I think right. is kind of yeah. cool. <laughs> well, uh, the film opens uh, showing us this particular place and showing us from a far enough distance from a hillside. The the shot is from a hillside, so that you can see just how small the place is. And then we see uh, 
the uh, the local graveyard where a funeral is in progress. It's raining. It's it's very you know it's a very drab gray day, mm-hmm. and uh, the something happens and the coffin falls, comes loose and falls into the grave and breaks open, and it uh, discharges the corpse out of the, uh, the the coffin, and we see this deteriorated corpse covered in maggots. And you'd have to think to yourself, my God, how long do they wait to bury this? Thing? <laughs> well, first, my first thought is wondering if now, of course, you know, and, that, and you, this would another been another good. Uh, maybe this was the Italian influence on the film because nobody can do maggots like the Italians can do maggots. Uh, <laughs> yes. I think the first, maybe the first. I always wondered if uh, cause the first use of, of maggots in a horror film was in uh, a Black Sunday. Uh, you know, there's some know. scenes in that, but. Uh, but of course, maggots became very heavily associated with Italian horror, especially yeah. Fulci's films and Argento's. So uh, um, I would be—I'd uh, be curious as to whether this was the first use of maggots in a Spanish horror film, uh, because I don't think you see it too much. This was what seventy-three, I think. This film, uh, seventy-three, a, seventy-four. The official—the yeah. official date listed online is seventy-four. So. Yeah, but uh, yeah, this opening funeral scene. Um, at some point, we need to, as much as possible. I mean, I've got a couple of theories about who this is they're burying and what this is, but but some of it kind of pertains to the ending of the film, so I'm not sure what all we can say and how much we're going to go with it, but uh, I may be able to speculate at least on one of the theories I have, uh, but we'll wait, okay, on that. Okay. wait on that. Well, um, <clears throat> after this, we get the uh, the credit sequence, and uh, honestly, this, this credit sequence is a, a kind of perfect summation of the film in general, which is uh, it's this incredibly creepy opening sequence that really is just packed with atmosphere mm-hmm. really sets the tone and sets the pa- sets the place yeah uh but playing over it is some wildly inappropriate <laughs> off-kilter music and this ain't the only scene that happens too. no now let's let's refresh your memory if you uh don't remember our discussion of leon klamovsky's films in the past mm-hmm. we love his films don't get me yeah. wrong he's a filmmaker that i can always trust to uh to bring the creepy to bring the atmosphere mm-hmm. and to uh know no, not just where to position his camera, but how to move it for maximum effect within a scene. He's very good at setting things up and doing them very well. But, as Senior Nashi himself commented, Klamovsky had a tendency to not give too much of a shit mm-hmm. about mu- music placement right. or music appropriateness yep. within his films. Which means that, unfortunately, in some of the, uh, the more irritating... Uh, some of the more irritating points in some of his films, you will have what can only be referred to as what the fuck music <laughs> playing over a scene oh, that yeah. does seem, the music often seems to work against what the movie is attempting to accomplish. Yeah. And even though someone is usually given some sort of music credit, you sort of suspect this is mostly library cues just because of yeah. budget considerations that, uh, you know, they don't have an actual composer, especially since the music is just, so different from the themes are so different from each other, yeah. and, uh, and and they're not always inappropriate in this film, but no, no, a, no. but a lot of times they are really just do not fit at As all. As a matter of fact, uh, going back through the movie, uh, I would have to say that somewhere between seventy five and eighty percent of the time, the music works really well. Mm. Um, but that twenty to twenty five percent when it when it's jarring yeah. in what it's doing really stands out. I know. It's like, you know, kind of stuff like, when you're like supposed to be sitting in atmosphere. I was like, what the fuck is, why did we, huh? <laughs> but that being said, I'm going to own up to the, to, to this right now at the outset is that is really the only complaint I have about this film. 
Yeah, it's it's probably yeah. It's I would say it's 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 by far the biggest distraction or biggest detriment yeah. the film has is is this this problem with the music. Okay, so the film begins and we are we are introduced to our main characters. Uh, we're we're on a uh, bus on uh, um, a uh, a country road. Now this is uh, this is, we're still on a, a, a paved road now, so we we're not out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. yet. Right. Uh, we're introduced to uh, these people. We're about a hundred kilometers from. Um, Bergonia, I think I can't remember the name of the place. Yeah, the place that they're actually heading. That's for, where they're headed right. because they've all been they, these people have all been hired as servants at this large country estate. Uh, there are uh, six people here, not counting the bus driver, um, and not counting uh, the one of them's daughter. Right. We have someone who's been hired as a chambermaid, um, one who's been hired as the kitchen cook, a major domo, a gardener, a uh, professor a teacher to teach mm-hmm. the children at the estate and a chauffeur and I'll, i have to say that um you know there's there's good expositional dialogue and there's clumsy expositional dialogue and i actually think the dialogue here as in through most of the film is pretty well handled yeah, i actually think I the way surprised. that they let you know because the way that they tell how all these people are hired for all these professions is one of the guys is just basically saying hey wherever we're heading has to be a nice place for these people to be able to hire and then he goes through the list of what they all are but it sounds like natural conversation it doesn't yeah. sound forced and and it, i think that the way that they introduce the characters and set them up is w- good and i think the dialogue through most of the film is actually pretty well done i agree there are a couple of times when because of dubbing purposes or dubbing needs you know there'll be little bits and phrases which are a little awkward at times but for the most part it, it's pretty i really like the dialogue in this film i agree with you now I believe it's uh, the the uh, the lady who's the cook who, who has the daughter has the daughter yeah and uh, the daughter's name is Violet mm-hmm. and I will but I will say that uh, as, as well done as this scene is and you're right there there are times mm-hmm. when you feel in some of these movies where we're getting just a big info dump mm-hmm. uh, that's not the case here but there was a part of me that wanted to go ah uh, three hour tour <laughs> so. well you know actually this this is. We've talked before about uh, the uh, one of the common uh, methods of getting characters into either a mystery or a horror film. We talked about it very much in the last Beyond Nash. We did a murder mansion. In that case, they all arrived in different vehicles, or you have the thing where you throw them all into one conveyance and you know and get them there. We've seen that in uh, Eyeball. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that you know put them onto a bus. It was in uh, The Devil's Nightmare too. You know, is another so that's it. So it's kind of like the two different ways you get characters to the place they're going you either split them up and they meet or you can just throw them all into one thing and and, and or a carriage or whatever and get the yeah and get kind of introduce everybody before you know they get to their destination and this bus by the way is full of nashy faces you know familiar nashy uh yes yes and i think we'll we'll discuss we'll get some, on that yeah, we'll, some we'll, we'll discuss later. some of those let's let's go ahead and discuss yeah, we'll some of going. those um uh-huh. the uh the, fir- the the first one the, the real standout of the one is uh of course danica's um Darn it, Zurkowska. Zurkowska, the uh, the actress who uh, we first saw in uh, Mark of the Wolf Man. Yeah, we've about. always talked about she's pretty much the first lady of El Hombre Lobo lore because she was uh, she was El Hombre Lobo's first screen love. It's true, and uh, that's not the only place we've seen her though. No, no, definitely not. She was also in uh, The Hanging Woman. Yep, right. As far as Nashy films, that might have been. It. Yeah, actually, that is it. Yeah. I always think about the film Sexy Cat, which she's in as well, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but uh, so um, she's uh, she's someone we've seen before, and she is let's let's be honest, uh, Danica is a strikingly attractive oh, lady. Yeah. yeah, she's gorgeous. She's a she's got a very pretty face, gorgeous mm-hmm. blonde hair, 
and mm-hmm. uh, she she stands out in any crowd, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's something to be said when uh, this film sports a couple of redheads as well. Yeah, that's right. So uh, there's there's her in in, in here. We have uh, Louis Sidges, mm-hmm. who uh, plays I think the gardener, I believe, right? Or is right, that, right? Uh, and his he's name's the, Godo he, he, in this. Is that yeah? Uh, her name was Alma, and his name is Godo. Right, yeah. and. Um, the uh, the beauty of this is that a lot of the faces are familiar, even if you've only seen a few of these films. They are mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, if you'll if you'll notice when this was made, some of the films that you see these character actors in and were made within just a few years of each other. Yeah, yeah. And so they really still look the same way they did. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, I, I noticed at least one of them has basically the same facial hair as he does in a couple of other movies. <laughs> But we'll get we'll we'll yeah. get to different discussions. I'm, not, I'm I refuse to have a lengthy discussion of facial hair. <laughs> right, we we you know yeah that's right or toupees you know we or toupees. We're not doing that yeah. this time. But uh, what we have here is uh, they're driving along. They're on their way. They're about a hundred kilometers away from where they're going. When uh, well, damn it, the driver of the van. I mean, the driver of the bus dies on them. Yeah, just up and croaks. Uh-huh. Which uh, luckily they do, they do not wreck. They're able to uh, to guide the the bus onto the side of the road and uh, realize what kind of a shitty position they're in now. The uh, they uh, figure okay, we're gonna have to, we're in the middle of nowhere here. We're gonna have to find where they 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 get the little girl off the bus. Yeah. The, the gardener played by Louis Sidges actually takes her off the bus and it's like okay, you just look. Yeah. Come on, come on over here. The they've got to do something. Yeah, the the, the driver's not he's feeling re- well. Yeah, he's gonna rest. Have a little lie he's gonna, down. He needs to, he needs to rest. Uh, while they're outside the van, she goes. She plays just off to one side mm-hmm. of the road, and she sees a little boy on the roadside there, and uh, begins to talk to him, and kind of doing that you know that little kid thing where you're where you playing just, with you somebody, and you see another kid, and he's instantly your friend. You know, right. there's no shyness between children there. You know, you see another another little person. Oh, he must. He must know. We, you know, he can only be a friend, and you yes, know, he must know everything I know. And yeah. yeah, surely to God, he's either you know a really good friend, or since there's no giant turtle around, surely to God, <laughs> he he is the best thing that I have here, right? <laughs> so uh, all seems perfectly normal, except the kid doesn't speak, and then mm. right as they're about ready to leave, mm. and they call to her, the guy just disappears. The yeah. kid just disappears, which mm. doesn't really freak the girl out at all. She's just mm. like, oh well, that's weird. I looked away, and suddenly he was gone. So. Back on the bus. Oh, by the way, I have to say this girl, Violet, here has the most hair I've ever seen on any <laughs> child in my life. She, her hair is so long and thick that it's almost in dreadlocks. You know, at times it looks. Like <laughs> it is just a massive, massive amount of hair. Oh Lord, uh, you're right. It's like especially grew up with terrible neck problems with the weight of all that <laughs> hair on her head. Troy, God damn it! I told you we weren't going to talk about hair. Well, no, wait, I said, I said facial hair. Okay, hold on. okay. Well, they uh, one I'm of surprised the you didn't have that too. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the, uh, the the fellows takes up driving the bus because somebody's got to. Mm. They they go along for a little while and they come to a, a fork in the road, and they have a, there's a sign that says, "Okay, um, our destination is roughly 80 kilometers that way," mm. but there's this town. To the side here, called Tonia, which is only ten kilometers away. Maybe we ought to go there to see about contacting mm-hmm. the authorities about mm-hmm. dealing with the dead sh- the, the dead driver. The choice is made. They agree that's a good idea, and head in that direction. En route, they realize that Tonia, this little town they're headed toward, isn't on the map. That should send up some warning signs. <laughs> yes, indeed. And when they get there, 
It is the rustic village that we saw at mm-hmm. the beginning of the film. Right. Uh, night has fallen, but there is absolutely no one around. I mean, like, no one around at all. They pull up in front of what appears to be the, the, the bar slash tavern in the town. And um, still no one around. They go inside the place. And it's very clear that this, I mean, there's a fire in the fireplace. The, mm-hmm. the place mm-hmm. is lit up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's as if the people just yeah. disappeared. Yeah. Suddenly, um, which, you know, is, is a bit mysterious. And they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. When in walks... Another, yeah, yeah. A, 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 basically uh, a stranded traveler, played mm-hmm. by Jack Taylor. Jack Taylor. Yes, two Jack, Ch- Jack Taylor films in a row. Yep, yep. From 1974 to 2014. <laughs> Hello, it's... welcome, Mr. Taylor. And uh, boy, is he a piece of work in this film. <laughs> we'll get into that. Uh, I want. I want. Later yeah. on, I'm going to try. I'm going to. I'm going to quiz you on 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 what you think this character, the, the age of this character, might be. <laughs> okay, so he's a stranded traveler. Yeah, his name's Lewis, isn't it? So yeah. And uh, what we have here is uh, he. He is his car is broken down, mm-hmm. and he's uh, here here in Tanya, and he can't find anybody either. He's been looking around for about an hour. He said, but you know there, there are rooms upstairs that are yeah. ready for visitors. There's, as you can see, drink here. There's no food prepared, but you know it's a, it's a bar. Now, warning warning sign number two here is when someone speculates perhaps they're all in church, and he says there is no church in this village. Now, what yes. your what European village is not going to have you know is <laughs> no not going to have small. a church. No matter how small, is not going to have a church. Correct. So. Interesting. So they realize, okay, well, the hell with it. I guess we just divvy up the rooms. Let's bed down for the night. It's 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 night. Let's go to bed. And one of them says, "What? What with no dinner?" And and one of the other folks just looks at him and goes, "Uh, "It won't be the first time you've gone to bed without dinner." (laughs) Well, in his room, our buddy Jack (laughs) discovers a hole in his wardrobe that lets him spy on the next room. And lo and behold, who is in the next room? Tell me, Troy. It is Alma. That's right. The beautiful blonde Alma. Danica Z. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed, folks. Uh, and what kind of luck does this son bitch have? <laughs> what timing? Yeah. When he discovers the hole and looks through it, she's just stripped nude and is getting into her nightdress. Yes, yes. Boy, it's hard to complain about Jack Taylor and the luck that son of a bitch has, no matter what <laughs> character he's playing. <laughs> well, he's certainly very pleased with his luck. There's no question, no. Now this is where I made a note where yeah. okay his his ability to surreptitiously view this naked woman that he's just met mm-hmm. his reaction to it could only be described as a child who just found his own cookie jar <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. A teenager who just discovered yeah. a whole new fantasy for later masturbation purposes. No kidding, no kidding. Yeah, or it's... a drug addict who just spotted a pile of cocaine. <laughs> I mean, tell me, this... his reaction to this and his reaction yeah. to every time that we see him spying on her. Yes, this yes, thank you. It's not just once. It's, it's not a... just once. Okay, keep in mind that this this is guy who, for all we can tell, is is the romantic lead male protagonist. Right, right. Uh, and uh, maybe this is what... Passed for, I guess, in, in 70s Euro horror, you know, this is, uh, you could do this, I guess, and still be a, a romantic, admirable hero type. But here in our modern times, watching it, and the word creepy is all it Well, not just that. Mind. I swear to you, the, the self satisfied oh, giant oh, smile he has oh on his face. Oh, my God. He's just like, yeah. Once, well, he, once he climbs into bed, is, is, is seriously a man who has, you know, his, his 
stored away something <laughs> intense for the spank bank. I well, mean, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm really listening when he lays back on the bed after he's seen her and he grabs the pillow. I'm really glad the camera cuts. You know, <laughs> there, I, I don't, don't know wanna, what the hell he's doing after that. I just, but it's it is hilarious though. I, I, but you know, we 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 we've made fun of Jack Taylor, you know, before for sometimes being wooden in his performances. But I think that oh, he's wonderful. I think he's yeah, he's good. But he really should. The man should not smile. The man should just it's just a creepy. <laughs> It was it, when he smiled in 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 wax. It was scary. And here, it's, it's, there's, even, there's a scene later when he's sitting okay. at the table with with uh, Alma, and he gives her just a weird grin. I mean, we'll get to that. And it's just like it just doesn't work, Jack. <laughs> just don't grin, don't you should not grin. But but we love we love ourselves, oh, love and Jack. He's love awesome. Him. But well, uh, um, anyway, yeah. So he's watched. Uh, he's he's got himself a whole eyeful here of of, of Alma. Well, we see briefly uh, several of the other folks who've got who've bedded down in their rooms, but it seems to be that there's one 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 member of the troop who either didn't get a room or didn't want a room. Yeah, I was about to say, I maybe one or two is like, did they just not let him have a room, or was he just, or did he just kind of get to drinking and just kind of because he's obviously got that he's got that kind of uh, sot, you know, that that alcoholic <laughs> glow to his ruddy glow. face, glow to his face. So maybe he just. But it's him. it's Ernst uh, uh-huh. who uh, I forget what his job was going to be at the. Uh, he's the chauffeur. I think. Oh, he's the chauffeur. Well, he's the one who's driving the bus for them now, mm-hmm. and he's just snoozing in the bar. He's like passed out there, head down on one of the tables, and he's awakened by uh, some noise, and then uh, the door to the outside opens, the front door to the to the bar. He goes outside to investigate, uh, looks in the bus because he thinks he heard something on the bus, and notices that the the uh, driver's body is missing. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts walking around uh, the village a little bit. And I thought this was great. This is another instance where I just yeah. want to praise Klamovsky for his framing oh, and for his yeah. shot for his uh, setup of his shots. He's just really good at conveying a lot of neat stuff. And at first, you see uh, Ernst walking around, and there's this creepy this creepy dark fig- figure behind him that yeah. he doesn't see. Yeah, and it doesn't. The way it shows is like it really doesn't make it a dramatic or try and no. call your attention to it. It's just you know you just see suddenly there's a shape same yeah. shape back there. It's I, I love the way that that, that figure is introduced. And then, uh, slowly but carefully, he's, he's he slowly but carefully we're introduced to him spotting some villagers in the distance walking toward him, mm-hmm. and we see that they seem a little bit pale. And as they get closer, there's more detail. And then there's some more people coming from mm-hmm. the side off from another street toward him. Mm-hmm. And by the time he realizes these people are coming at him with malice aforethought, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're upon him and attacking him, and. At first, they are pale, and the look of them, mm-hmm. they you might be willing... Well, I mean, I think you, you, you might be forgiven for thinking these people are zombies or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the way they attack him, they do go for the throat and the wrist, mm-hmm. places where it's obvious they're going for uh, mm-hmm. soft spots to mm-hmm. get at uh, the luscious, luscious, red, gushy stuff <laughs> underneath the skin, which I think is quite neat. Uh, I just have the, the word bite written mm-hmm. down with an exclamation mark. <laughs> I like that uh, uh, there's often in this film that, that uh, Klamowski chooses a certain kind of lens and I, I did to film the when the vampires are close up that makes them, I don't know if it's what you'd call a slight fisheye kind of uh, lens or, or if there's a different name for it where he there's films a, kind there's of a, There's up a and, little distortion. Yeah. yeah, that makes them kind of, you know, where it's looking kind of up and under, you know, like their faces that, that yeah. almost looks it's a slight kind of fisheye distortion. Nothing real extreme, well, but just a little... one of the neat things that you, you can you can say here, and I, I will say that I, I'm sad that I can't uh, answer my own question here, but this movie is shot very wide. This is shot two, three, five to one, um, which, which is about as wide as you can shoot a, a, mm-hmm. a regular film. And I don't remember Klamowski shooting this wide 
in any of his other films. I, I mm-hmm. think he was shooting at uh, 185 to 1 mm-hmm. or 166, which is a, uh, a much less wide scope for his mm-hmm. shots. Yeah. And in this, um, I do remember some Nashi films being shot this wide, but I can't remember if he shot them. But the use of the widescreen in this movie is very effective. Yeah, it is. And uh, there are several instances, not just when they're when he's showing us like the opening shots of the village, but in as we described here, as Ernst is attacked, well, he's as he's kind of stalked and attacked on these streets at night. Mm-hmm. The shot choices are wonderful, and the use of the full widescreen is really effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and he, he gets very inventive with using that full wide image and it's just a it's a it's a thing of beauty it's something that i want i yeah. want to praise more and more because uh the 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 film the film is very effective technically and it the is. uh the uh if you're gonna shoot that wide mm-hmm. use every bit of the frame and he really does in this movie it's it's one of the it's one of the things i love so much about uh, sergio leone's uh spaghetti westerns like the good the bad and the ugly and once upon a time in the west mm-hmm. is he shot very wide and he used Every freaking centimeter of that image, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's 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 a thing of beauty to watch someone use it so effectively. Yeah, yeah. And I think that what he pulls off here, just in, I mean, let, let's put it this way: I, in my opinion, you mm-hmm. could watch this movie without the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Without the music, or with it's just the point. music. Yeah, it's a good point. And you would have no trouble following the storyline mm-hmm. because the film is told. So effectively, mm-hmm. visually, yeah, and it's. I, I think. I think. That's and there's a, so many things as we'll get into that are not revealed at all through the story anyway. That I mean, yeah. that the ambiguities. There's a lot of ambiguities left in right. the story. That so once again, you're not. You would not miss a lot of explanatory dialogue if you true, if you watch it without sound. I mean, you you'd miss detail. You'd miss. Yeah. Uh, you'd miss um, some some neat. Well, you'd miss a lot of really wonderful things mm-hmm. but you could still follow the story yeah, yeah okay well the next morning uh the townspeople are suddenly about mm-hmm. yeah. as a matter of fact uh we're introduced to the fact that the townspeople are about by by uh <clears throat> our dill alma mm-hmm. our dear alma she has a rather rude awakening she's awakened by uh the uh the, the uh, maid in the place telling her that breakfast is ready or actually bringing she's her sort up of sitting breakfast. there and staring well she's sitting there and staring at her staring her down you know, yeah, know. It's, it's how she first wakes up but just staring at her waiting for her to wake up like <laughs> yeah. some creepy ass dog <laughs> yeah but uh <laughs> uh everybody has shown up and um they're uh, the uh, the other people from the bus are downstairs eating breakfast mm-hmm and we are introduced to the major. Uh, his name is Boris, and he's kind of the uh, unofficial mayor of the town. Mm-hmm. And he introduces himself to Jack and uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm not referring to him by his character name. Oh, uh, Lewis. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 Diane Diane Z. Who uh, Diane Z. I, I liked your name for her there, <laughs> Diane Z. Yeah, but but Alma, yes, is her name. But but uh, they're they're eating <coughs> breakfast together. He comes over, and introduces himself, and uh, explains that the reason no one was around is they were attending a funeral yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was a nighttime. Yeah, one of its village members had just died, and they were uh, doing a night an all night ceremony there to bury it. Kind of neat. the The mayor is uh, called to the back, called to the back of the tavern, and uh, the cook back there is explaining is like I'm, you know, they're they're eating rolls that we've we've made and all this mm-hmm. that, and the other, but these people are going to want real food. What are we going to feed them? We don't have any meat. And the mayor uh, says, uh, don't worry, that'll be solved like all of our other problems by the countess. The countess. 
Cut to the blacksmith. <laughs> who, uh, well, I just love this aspect of the story. Just, <laughs> I know this is this, this is awesome. This, okay, so uh, let, let let's cut to the chase, and we'll we'll speed along a little mm. bit here by pointing out that uh, they they essentially take a limb every now and then from a different <laughs> member of the village yeah. to cook up to feed to the the people from the bus who are stranded here. Yeah. And they start with a blacksmith. They take one of his legs. Right. Seems to me like they do it to like some really useful people too. But they don't. I but I mean, I guess they take the limbs. They don't, they don't necessarily, necessarily have to need, have. Yeah. And I love the guy that does the. Uh, is just awesome. The guy who basically does the procuring. Oh, the giant. Yeah, the, the, yeah. He's just referred to as the giant. Yeah. If this was a full-on Italian production, it would probably be uh, Bud Spencer playing playing him. You know, it would probably be. Uh, <laughs> but in this case, it's a it's a guy who I believe was in another. Uh, <coughs> I think he was like a director, producer, and did a lot of other things, but uh, he is massive. And It's uh, uh, Fernando Bilboa. Yeah, and he was at least in one other... Uh, he was in... Um, oh, well, I know he was in some Franco films. I don't know if he was in another Nashi film or not, but he was, he was in, in several Franco films. Yeah. Including The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. Where he plays the monster. That's right. Calling the Spanish Dave Prowse, if you will. <laughs> uh, later on, he was in Hundra in the 80s. Yeah, Hundra, right. Yeah. And... Uh, a film that Which I just got. Just a, blast, yeah. a film that I just got on Blu-ray. Exterminators of the Year Three Thousand. <laughs> nice. He plays a character called Crazy Bull. Boy, <laughs> if if you're going to entice me any further, yeah, <laughs> to see to see a post-apocalyptic crappy film <laughs> presented on Blu-ray in a way that should never be done. Tell me, there's a character played by this actor, yeah. who looks like a giant lunatic <laughs> named Crazy, Crazy Bull, Bull. <laughs> and I am there. Hmm. <sighs> But um, so that throughout periodically a couple or three times in this film we have, we have uh, we have a member of the village who loses a body part so that they can uh, mm-hmm. provide uh, food for their uh, soon to be victims. Let's put it that way. And if there's a and then we get lots of, of course the obligatory black humor dialogue that goes along with it when we see you know yeah. the, our 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 protagonists all uh, carving up and commenting on how great the how the meat is, and one is. of them says, "Like I've never eaten meat like this anywhere." And and, and uh, the mayor said, uh, "You know, the major oh, the major says, I, if there's one thing I'm sure of, <laughs> yep. that you'll, that you've yeah, never, it's, yes, yeah. you've never had such a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly." Well, uh, they're all looking around and eating eating breakfast, and all seem pretty thrilled with things. Uh, and somebody, some they've all realized that Ernst is not around. Where'd he go? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I love the character. <clears throat> I guess he was going to be the major devil. What's the name? I can't remember the name of the character, but the one who's really kind of just pissed off all the time. Oh right, um, um, uh, Marcus. Uh, Marcus. Yes, no. the facial hair guy you're talking about, or or well, I guess, or were you talking about Ernst? I guess they both. But no, yeah, no, Marcus no. is the one that has the uh, yeah. The... Yeah, Marcos, uh, but played by Emmanuel de Blas. Yeah, yeah. Who we've seen, uh, we've seen in a number of movies. Yes, we actually. have. Uh, well, he's he's the. He was uh, in Assignment Terror, Hunchback of the Morgue, I Hate My Body. Uh, he's in Ghost Galleon. Exactly. Uh, he's in Slugs, an all-time classic. <laughs> I love Slugs. Oh, Slugs is great. Somebody recently on some podcast or another, I can't remember what I was listening to, identified Slugs as a 1970s movie. I like wanted to hold up my hand and go, no, 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 no. no, no. no. It was from the glorious was, 80s. It's from the glorious 80s. We we'll have to do that one time because it is it's, a Spanish film, isn't it? It definitely is. It, yeah. it, it, it's uh, from the same auteur that brought us Pieces. Pieces, which, once again, we keep promising. and have Yes, not, yes, yes. Oh, I think, I think before this year is out, we will we, have to well, cover Pieces. Pieces so. will be, yeah, maybe that will be our October offering or something. We'll see about that. Uh, yes, we'll have to because it occurs to me that that is yet another Jack Taylor film. Oh, it is. That's right. This he could is be the year of Jack Taylor. Every year is Jack Taylor's year. But especially apparently this year yeah 
Well, Ernst reappears right after he bitches about the fact, where the hell is Ernst? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Ernst is uh, quite pale now himself, yeah. as well he would be, considering that we He's saw him get attacked by blood. a bunch yeah. of vampires. Yeah, the way that they have, the way they film him and something about his makeup and his paleness and his hair, it actually made me think a lot of Boris Karloff in Black Sabbath uh, in the, Ver- the Vertilac uh, yeah, segment there. Yeah, you're right, there, you're right. especially with his kind of shaggy mane yeah, of hair. Yeah, his kind of, that can run me of that a lot. That's a good point. Mm. Uh, well, Ernst appears and explains to everybody, well, explains, okay, well, you know, we can, we can get out of here now. So all the, uh, the, all the people who uh, came on the bus, load up on the bus, uh, Jack goes to his car. I said that he was broken down, but actually he was not broken down. I apologize for that. He was just uh, kind of stranded there in town. He drove into town. That's right. He was just looking for a place to stay, and you know, and yeah. and, and so they get on the bus, and uh, Ernst goes to crank it up, and lo and behold, the bus won't start. Damn. Now, anybody watching this movie who thought that bus was going to start, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what the hell movie you think you're watching. But the, and if you the, think Lewis's car is going to start too, yeah, yeah. it don't, and yeah. it ain't. So there it is. So, hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's at this point, <laughs> once again, the character played by Manuel de Blas mm. uh, is just, once again, just pissed off. God damn it, we don't have any fucking money. What are we going to do? <laughs> well, once again, the mayor steps in and it says, hey, you know, don't worry about this. We'll we'll get this all the figured out. The, figure the, countess will, the countess will figure this out. Everything's fine. Uh, and lo and behold, next scene, we meet the countess. Mm. Who is the one attractive person in this whole village? <laughs> Let's just say that right now. <laughs> you know, honestly, you're right, but I hadn't thought of it in those terms. You're well, there's right. a lot of things about the Countess that's different from the rest of the village. Well, we can get into that uh, well, at some yes. point. But, uh, it, it, but one it, of the things it, is let, that let, she's... Let's, okay, let's start yeah. with this. I, okay, I want to sure. get technical. I yeah, want to okay. get technical for, here for just a second. Mm-hmm. Helga Lene mm-hmm. plays the Countess. Yes. Now, of course, everybody who's listening to the National Cast for long, we all, yeah, I mean, she was... And horror rises from the tomb. Vengeance and, of the mummy. Right, right. So Helga is someone that we we know and we love, mm-hmm. and uh, it's always a pleasure to see her, and it's yeah. definitely a pleasure to see her in this. But clearly, they didn't have Helga Lene for a long period of time because she is never seen in the village. Yeah, yeah never. Yeah, she's in two count them, two sequences in the mm-hmm, movie. Mm-hmm. The first one being this. Mm-hmm. And the second one being one near the end of the film. Now this sequence, well, now she has sequence a, is well, kind of extended. This sequence, which is kind of okay, extended. It's, true, it's in two, it's in two yes, pieces. Yes, you're right. Where she's meeting the entire group. And she kind of starts flirting with the teacher. The guy was going right. to the teacher, the young and guy. And he sticks around and they have sex. To another just bizarre piece of music. And you know, that, that, oh, no, that, that, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get on that. Yeah, but that, that. But, but, but here's me. Whatever that, oh God, you got it. That, you yeah. got to. Find a we gotta find a version of that and play that. That's just some of the most that's that's bizarre make out music. Okay, so, let me tell you. So, so you what you I tell you what here here let's let's play the the weird music over the sex scene right here and we'll take a break. Thank you. You've made me happy. Thank you, Caesar. Countess, you. No, Caesar. You don't have to tell me anything.
Okay, now here's the thing. Here's what I was thinking, which is um, the first time I you know, watched this movie twice mm-hmm. in the past week, and mm-hmm. here's the here's the first thing that occurred to me watching right. this scene, which is the music doesn't doesn't work. That was the first thought. But then on the second viewing, going through and making notes, what occurred to me was what they may have been going for, or maybe not, and maybe it just works now from you know two, several decades distance, me thinking about it in these terms, is what they may have been going for is since we already know mm-hmm. something bad's going down, there's something supernatural going on, there are vampires mm-hmm. in this town, mm-hmm. we don't yet know anything about the Countess. Although, if you're smart, you already <laughs> suspect. Yeah. But... What they may have been going for is something that was kind of, I mean, definitely not straight romantic music to play over mm-hmm. a, a scene of lovemaking, but something that was like that in shape and form, but a little discordant, a little off, a little off yeah. kilter, yeah. so that you got the form of a piece of romantic music that would play over that, but one that yeah. kind of scratched on your nerves. Yeah. Which it did, but you're right. That could be very much. I mean, I can see what you're talking about. That that could be. Yeah, I mean, it was. I kind of felt like you the second time around. I was like, okay. I mean, I didn't. I didn't come up with a description as as good as you did, but I did actually didn't feel like okay. Maybe it does kind of work in the scene. You know, it wasn't. You know, yeah. It was, it, it was it's just, not. It's it's definitely not the most discordant piece of music laid over this film. No, no. Uh, I mean, because there's a lot. Like I say, that roughly seventy five percent of the music in this film works very effectively. Yeah, yeah. And there, the, but there is that you know quarter of the of the score where you're going. Well, I don't really think that's. <laughs> I don't think that's working at all, folks. You're a little too. <laughs> the thing. The thing about the inappropriate music in this film is the same way. It's the same type of inappropriate music that I feel sometimes gets entered into a lot of Urahara, which is it's inappropriately upbeat or peppy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's up tempo when it shouldn't be at all. Yeah. And that happens a couple of times yeah. in this movie oh, yeah. Yeah. where you're just sitting there going, I don't think this music like this, is for this film. Yeah, like this scene could have worked much better without this music. Yeah. But okay, we're introduced to the Countess. She uh, carries on a flirtation with uh, the, the mm-hmm. teacher. They end up having a rough and pumpy sex. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Helga, for showing us yes, your, your you, naked body. Always to be expected. By the way, she's a redhead in this. Mm-hmm. And um, no, I will say, I, 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 yeah, I would just say like she manages to even calm Marcus down by basically throwing money at everybody. You know, just saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're sorry Marcus for your down. inconvenience. I'm going to just give you a lot of money because of your, you know, the things because you had to be through here, and that that pretty much manages to calm them all down. And I like the fact that she says she inherited the uh, title from her her grandfather Orson, who was a director. I know. Actor. Did you not? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I was like, weird. okay, all right. Well, we'll, we'll, that's, interesting, you know, we'll interesting. go with it. We'll go but see, with here's it. the thing. Like I say, she's really only in two No, I think you're on to something that film. I hadn't thought of. And I'm pretty sure, and if you'll notice, mm-hmm. and they even make note of it in the dialogue of the film later on, not all of the actors are there to meet her. Not uh, all of them yeah, are there. Yeah, you're right. It's not like the whole group is there. Right. And, Jack yeah. Taylor's character isn't there. That's because right. he's, he says he says later on, you know, this count is everybody's, everybody's talking about. Everybody's talking about, yeah. And so here's my thing. They mm. may, I think they made lemonade out of lemons here, which yeah. is we only have her for maybe a day. Who the yeah. hell knows? And they shot what they needed to somewhere else. I don't know where they shot it, but I yeah. bet you it definitely was not in mm. the village. It was definitely back in the studios. And they it, shot it yeah. because you yeah. only she's you only see her in those mm-hmm. two sections. Wow. 
Now this also this also was something I was going to get to, and we can talk about it here because and and because you made me think about it maybe a little differently here. But one of the things I've and you know this one's as you've all as we all figured out by now, you know she's obviously the the leader of this village and who right. we're all vamps. She's a vampire herself, as we find out very quickly. Well, in this yeah, next I mean, scene we, when we, she vamps we, 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 the chauffeur Caesar is the uh, the, do, the, the the teacher's the teacher, name. Yeah. yeah, she she bites. Oh, that's a pretty brutal scene where she basically bites him and then just throws his body to the villagers out the window, which is a great scene. <coughs> um, Agreed, but one of the things, but one of the things that I, I came away with this film, you know, is noticing how different the depictions of her—not just the fact, you know, we were joking about her being the only attractive one in the village, but honestly, not only is she really the only healthy person, <coughs> looking person, but also she's the only classic-looking vampire when she turns into a vampire. Now, oh, that's true, sometimes yeah. they actually kind of make her look a little more unattractive when she turns into a vampire, just with her hair and makeup and everything. But she has the classic vampire fangs. And there's no other scene in the film where any other of the villagers have those. They some of them have weird teeth. They'll sometimes have kind yeah. of, but none of them have the classic vampire fangs. And and then this, and we later the second secret you're talking about, we're seeing that it takes place in a crypt with the classic coffin with, right. and it's almost the only really gothic looking kind of classic vampire movie moment in the film when it's, we see it's the, the coffin. It's the only, it's the only one. Which again, kind of, and I I thought that was a really neat contrast the way she sets off. In, in a way, it kind of makes it obviously. There's a difference between her, like her being the aristocrat, correct, and the rest of the village isn't. So I think it's intentional to a point. But I also wonder how much of that came out of the fact that these were filmed separately, like what you're talking about. If it's true that this was these sequences of her were filmed maybe in a separate location or even just kind of rushed or whatever because they only had her for a certain time, maybe that's also why the whole feel of her scenes is so different from the other <clears throat> well. Let me let me throw this at you as well mm. because it's something I wanted to bring up, which is that. <clears throat> If you, you you just touched on it, which is that the Countess, played by Helga Lanay, really is the kind of uh, the er vampire. She's the the she's the main vampire. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. it would appear that she probably is, from all intents from all intents and purposes, the one who created this vampire village. Yeah, yeah. That's the at least that's the sense you mm-hmm. get from the movie. Yeah. So, if you think about it, in a way, there's some parallels to the classic Dracula story. With Dracula being this the aristocrat who rules over an area, mm-hmm. and he has servants, the the the, the local servants, yeah. but she has vampirized all yeah. of the people yeah. instead of keeping some of them human to actually be able to do her bidding during the day, mm-hmm. and that is touched upon by the fact that in this film these vampires move around during the day. Yeah, it's a heavily overcast day, yeah. which near the end of the film, mm-hmm. well, right at the very mm-hmm. end of the film, we get the idea that it may have been some kind of supernatural element that kept the place so overcast mm-hmm. and allowed these vamps yeah. out and out into the daylight without, you know, dying. Mm-hmm. The, the, the parallel between the Countess and Dracula is kind of neat because you have her... After she's fed on Caesar, tossing him yeah. to these others, tossing the scraps, and yeah. it's and it's a lot like her, uh, like Dracula, you know, tossing food to the vampire bringing, yeah, brides, right, you know? right, bringing the baby, you know, the child, or right, whatever for the yeah. So there's, uh, <clears throat> it's it's kind of uh, probably intentional vampire lore kind of being folded into this story, just uh, as kind of uh, you know, it's a, that that structure and that mm-hmm. setup being something that somebody writing a vampire story would just decide. Okay, well, we'll, we'll use this as well. But here's the thing: mm-hmm. I did want to bring up. There's a, a classic poster art image of this film of Helga Linnae's character in full, you know, fangs mm-hmm. out glory, yeah, holding up 
this this male character uh, Caesar, the the, t- yeah. the teacher, and and you know holding him up in, yeah. in her arms like she's holding him full board. But that scene is not in this movie. No, she does no. toss him to yeah, them, but not that way. But You're not, right, not that way. Bench. It's true. It's and true. I thought that that was neat in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Somewhere, I wonder if somewhere along the lines they they wanted to shoot it that way. If there were stills, maybe of this that were used, yeah, as they? part of the because it's the a great reversal campaign. of the classic monster holding the right. Im- girl image that we've seen a million million times, you know, in in horror imagery, you know, that reverse of that, you know, the the woman holding the man that way, so yeah, which is which is really neat, but it is an effective scene. Mm-hmm. And it's just you know she feeds off of him and then tosses him to her to yeah. the other vampires who are down below. Mm-hmm. It's very well done and it's it's nicely shot and it it's um, it's a it's a nice creepy scene. And then we get another creepy scene of a different nature, which is back in we're back in we're back in the hotel slash tavern, and once again we have Jack Taylor's character Lewis uh, watching the uh, the hot blonde through mm. the hole in the wall. Yeah. I even wrote this time. I wrote "dude" with a big explanation point in there <laughs> because it's like, it's like, come on, you know. But uh, yeah, well, this but, is the point where he actually like starts knocking yeah, on the wall, yeah. and messing with her a little, and then yeah. puts a note under her door explaining to her that, hey, you know, I just wanted you to know that there's somebody who's watching over you, uh, and she thinks this is so cute, oh, it's so this nice, is so nice, and it's it's like. <laughs> Woman, if you only knew. <laughs> and, you know, anyone who... It's very common to uh, analyze films from always the perspective of a completely voyeuristic art and always, you know, calling well, it yeah. about film how everything is... is touch- film is intrinsically voyeuristic, so yeah. And it is interesting to think that they could have easily just shown us scenes of her undressing and going to bed, and we would have watched it without turning away. We'd have, like, we would have just sat there enjoying the... <laughs> the chance thing. to do this. Here yeah. they're just showing us the exact same thing, but through the eyes of another character that's doing it, and we're thinking, like, you know, dude, man, come on. You know, it's like, you yeah, know. Yeah, but we're really the perverts. But we're the, exactly. See, we're right. Like so, yeah. Yeah. We see we're, what, no, we're no better than no, this guy. No, we're not. Guy. We're not, you know. Because we tell ourselves, like, oh, well, I, I wouldn't, you know. I would have. My I God. Would just, I would just How cover that hole. And I would cover that hole and but, go but back it, but to it, reading my Bible yeah. in the, in the bed there now. But, yeah, uh, really. but, it is. <laughs> but it's a completely different thing when we're watching a film. And it's like, oh, yes, film. Love Love yeah, the love film. Just the this, gratuitous. This, I see that this is clearly an R-rated film. Yes, yes. <laughs> I like the shape of her breasts. Yes, you know? I'm, I'm. I'm going to pay ex- twice as much for this film because it has a few seconds of missing nudity that I've <laughs> yeah, not exactly. gotten to see before. So. I'm going to track down that version that's got so, the extra three seconds of nipple. Yeah. It's... So basically, you know, Jack Taylor's playing the embodiment of our perversion on this. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in a way, honestly, he, he always did. Other films yeah, as I say, he always did. So. All right. Anyway, yeah. So, so yeah. So this time, um, we go next to. Uh, oh, we see. Godo and Marcus are doing their nightly card game. That yeah, they do. yeah, yeah. Go uh, and uh, Ernst calls them down. They see him at the bus, they, and he mm-hmm. calls them down, and mm-hmm. he he says, "I think I've got the bus fixed." And so they they go into the bus, and he cranks it up, and damn it, the bus mm-hmm. doesn't start. And and they're all there. The the, the, the three of them are there. And they're, oh, well, this is great, and they. Rising up behind them and from the back seats yeah. of the bus are some more of the vampire villagers. And yeah. so there we lose two more of them. Yeah, another great creepy scene. Had I seen this yeah. as a kid, yeah. that would have scared the shit out of me. You know, yeah, I agree. That's, a, that's another one of those shots. I, I, I don't want to harp on this too much. I'll stop right here, but it's another fantastic use of the widescreen yeah, image. Yeah, it is. So. It is. Visitors in Tolnia. To me, it's the most agreeable surprise I've had in a great many years. When the Major told me And I do hope you'll forgive me, but I couldn't wait, and I requested that you come to my house immediately. 
The Major also told me the reason you're remaining in our village. I hope the breakdown lasts a little while. It won't be agreeable if it does. Well, we'll see. You are persons who get around. And you know many cities. You can't imagine what it might mean to me. Many years in this house, with these people, surrounded by mountains, and meeting real humans who come from other lands. Yeah. That man in the painting was my grandfather Orses, actor, author, poet, and director. A Shakespeare on the rural scale. And it's from him I inherited an undeniable inclination for the theater. Um, the enthusiasm of the Countess makes us forget the motive for her asking you to come here. The Countess wishes to tell you simply that you may stay in Talia as many days as you like without worrying about anything. All right, well, the next morning, uh, Jack Taylor's character, I cannot call him by his character's name. Damn Lewis, it, Lewis. Lewis, damn it, to fucking hell. Okay. <laughs> Lewis is, uh, is uh, grabs, <laughs> in a rather bizarre scene, Yeah, <laughs> grabs, grabs Alma yeah. as she's walking down the hallway. Uh, yeah, I don't know it's totally necessary to do that. <laughs> yeah, I know, it definitely wasn't. Grabs her, yanks her into his room, nearly scares the hell out of her to, because he wants to talk to her quietly but without anyone else around saying that, hey, listen, mm-hmm. look, the town is deserted every night. Mm-hmm. There's no one around every night. Mm-hmm. And last night I saw the, uh, I saw uh, Godo, Godo and Marcus, and Marcus yeah. get into the, the bus, mm-hmm. but they never got out. Yeah, yeah. Something is going on. Something weird is going on. <clears throat> well, uh, we, we also were then shown uh, the little girl who is uh, playing with the same little boy that she right. met earlier beside the road before they even got to Tonia, mm-hmm. which is strange. Uh, they're playing all around the, the village, uh, mm-hmm. just the two of them, mm-hmm. so clearly they're free-range children. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started on this whole... Okay, this... Yeah. Uh, s- side note, everyone, you can avoid uh, feeling that I'm an old fogey asshole by oh. skipping the next minute of this small, minor little rant. Yeah. The idea yeah. of free-range children. First of all, yes. you know what that is? That's my fucking childhood. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it, here's a simple thing. Uh-huh. Children should be allowed to go out and play. I'm yes. not saying they yeah. shouldn't be go- allowed to go out and play with impunity yeah. at all times yeah. and in any way they wish. Yeah. But they should be encouraged thing- to just jump a train and, and take it to the next town or something. You know, <laughs> just, you know, we, there have to be limits. But, but I mean, the, I grew up in a time when, you know... Oh. Once the summer got there, oh, yeah. if I stayed in the house too long, my mother would take a broom and, yeah. and shoo me out yeah. of the house. Get out, go get out from yeah. underneath mm-hmm. my feet. Yeah. yeah, Why are you still in the house? Go do something. Yeah. Get on your bike. Go do whatever. This idea now that mm-hmm. people, parents are being questioned by the police because their children are walking home alone from a park two blocks away from their house yeah. Yeah. is madness. Madness! Yeah, madness! Now that's not to say that I think your child should be allowed to go out and play with vampires. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's definitely against mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I want to to emphasize that mm-hmm. playing with and not just vampires. Don't play mm-hmm. with werewolves, snakes, yeah. mummies, mm-hmm. scorpions, uh, hairy housing creatures <laughs> made from stop motion animation. Nothing and, of and, that nature. And dead things. But children definitely shouldn't should play, not with, play with dead, dead things. things. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Ooh, if I had if I had thought that I was setting you up for that, I would think I was clever. But I was not <laughs> setting you up for that. But folks, let me tell you right now. If here, here's the thing, when I was when I was a kid, mm-hmm. your parents checked on you at the beginning of the day. Yeah. And basically said, "Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Good. Go out and play. Mm-hmm. Come back in September." Yeah. All right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the way it was. <laughs> yeah. And it was fine. It was. Yeah. Nobody died, or very few of them died. Mm-hmm. Only a few limbs were lost. Mm-hmm. Nearly a little, uh, some some blindness. I'll grant you that. <laughs> but this whole thing with being so paranoid about your children that you have to have them in your in your eye line at all times, or locked up in the damned house. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, people. Yeah. Okay. But at any rate. Once again, we have this little girl playing with what can only be referred to as a clearly supernatural child. Mm-hmm. Although the but supernatural movie... in what way right, is the question. Right, uh, yes, right, is how right. is he supernatural? Uh, but the little girl and the boy are playing around the village, and uh, they start to play hide-and-go-seek. And just as an aside, the giant <laughs> plays, <laughs> walks by with an axe. Now, we are going to say don't. That you probably shouldn't let your, tell your kids that if there is a monstrous-sized man walking around with an axe... <laughs> Then maybe you might want to not play in that yeah, area. Yeah, maybe don't play in that area. But what's what's amazing is the yeah. the, the big guy with the axe didn't give a shit about them. He's just yeah. walking along. But they they where the the little girl decides to hide during hide and seek gives mm-hmm. her an unfortunate uh, view of the giant who goes to the uh, the local uh, knife sharpener who yeah. sharpens up his axe for him, <laughs> and then says uh, to him, "Okay, good. Uh, the countess sent me, and she says that you can do your job just as well with only one arm." <laughs> <laughs> and he chases him down and then chops the dude's arm off and the girl watches this from uh, behind some bales of hay. And is apparently not traumatized at all by it. Uh, apparently not. <laughs> that's what I mean. His children can brush this yeah, kind no, of thing. Yeah, I know. Well, and I do, you know, it's, well, first of all, let's get back to, I think this whole sequence is a classic. It may be the broadest example of poor use of music in this whole sequence. Oh, I don't even remember, but yeah, oh, you're probably This right whole that, kid, I mean, if it was just the kids playing hide-and-go-seek in a pastoral oh, setting. Oh, no, that's true. But yeah. the fact that we're obviously trying to, I mean, I, I just think like the film and, you know, the setting of the village is so creepy. We know that there's something odd yeah. about this kid. We're building up to this scene where the giant's going to, this giant guy's going to chop this guy's arm off. I just feel like it would have played out better with you with no music at all or something a little more menacing. Instead, we get something that I think is far too cheerful and peppy. Yeah, you know? once the scene's, scene gets into him him yeah, saying, the then countess it sent me. Then it should have stopped. He should have yeah. gone to something that, you know, yeah. like low-key, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, violin, mm-hmm. you know, sh- sharp violin strokes mm-hmm. or something like that. Something that would have given us some kind of sense of uh, menace or suspense. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You're probably so. Right. Did it? So I ask you now: Did it? Did it bother you that this girl, the little, that there's nothing else made of this scene for the rest of the film from the girl? That the girl never tells anybody that she doesn't appear. The next thing we see her, and she's just sitting there, not only eating with her mom, but at some point she's even like mentioned something about, "I want more of this or the food." She says something there. Well, I, that's just it. I don't think the girl. There's nothing said in this scene to make the girl think that the reason the guy cut this fellow's arm off has anything to do with their food. Well, no, but I mean, don't you, but I mean, I guess, I guess I thought it was uh, uh, still something that was kind of left. Oh yeah. I would, I don't know why she wouldn't have said anything to her mother. Anybody, unless we're getting back to the thing that she is kind of a weird little girl anyway. And maybe it gets out back thing of the whole way that kids can just sort of gloss over or just sort of like something happens. And then they're, 
just and an then they just don't even think away. about but saying anything. To me, about it felt yeah. a little bit like a plot thread that was just kind of not really followed up on. I can see what you're saying. Point, yeah, you're, you're you're right. She would have you know said something, but anyway, yeah, but she doesn't. No, I, I, I think you're right. It is it is something that probably the film could have benefited from having from following up mm-hmm. with that. And talking to her mother about it, and at least and having her mother dismiss it. Yes, she probably would have done the old, you know, well, first you're seeing imaginary kids, and now you're seeing guys getting their arms right. chopped off. exactly. You know, uh, no more Euro horror for you, young lady. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no more Leon Klamowski directed movies for you. <laughs> but there are some wonderful things that happen in this scene, though, that we, we must talk about here. Uh, well, which scene? Which one are we talking about? In the dinner scene there. This oh, next okay, okay, Because okay, I right. believe this is where, is this not where the major sits down, sits and, down uh, and, has, and is going to share a drink with them, although... And is this the scene where he has his own drink? Or is yes, this, yes, yes, yes. Uh, drinks a, a liquor that's made only in Tonia. Well, yes, only in And what I, what I wrote down here is, I think you'll agree with me, is, uh, and he, we find out that his drink of choice is Hammer Blood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, what is that? What is that Bella Lugosi wine? Uh, Bull's Blood? In Bull's, yeah. <laughs> well, this is very much the, uh, the color and consistency of Hammer Blood and the Hammer Film agree, Blood. Agree, agree. So. And he seems to like it. Yes. Uh, well, they're digging into their meal there. Uh, that is uh, Lewis and Alma. Mm-hmm. When underneath a chunk of meat is a human finger. finger. I just wrote down finger salad. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, she freaks out quite a bit. Yeah, as you would, yeah. And uh, the mayor and uh, the people in the tavern cover it very effectively. Oh, First of all, to fuck up that bad to leave a, to leave a oh, finger man. on the plate is pretty bad when yeah. you're, you know, you're the whole... It, it, what it shows to me is this is, you know, they're, they're getting a little sloppy. They're not that concerned anymore about yeah. keeping, the, keeping the whole we're going to kill you thing a secret from yeah. these folks. Well, especially now that they've reduced them to basically four, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah, basically yeah, at yeah. this point we only have four of our protagonists we, left. They, we are at this point. I actually made a note. There are only four of them left. We have uh, the uh, the mother and the daughter, Violet, mm-hmm. we and we have uh, Lewis and Alma. Those are the only four that are left. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, this is this, this this is a pretty harsh thing, and so uh, our, our dear little Alma goes to to lie down because she just needs to recover from this 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 yeah. hideous discovery. Right. And uh, at this point, uh, Lewis goes out and starts fiddling around with his car, and damn if he doesn't spot what probably is the problem with the engine, which is something has been snipped. Mm-hmm. Um. He goes up. He he goes up, talks to Alma, and explains to her that uh, he's figured out what's wrong with the car. It, and he, I don't think he uses the word sabotage, but it, that's what's happened, obviously. Yeah. And he plans with her to uh, go down tonight, fix the car, and we'll just get the hell out of yeah. here. Because he wants to fix it when he doesn't think about he's watching scenes. Because yeah. he figures by this point that they're meant to stay. You know, they're meant to be kept there. Right. And so, uh, and she says, "Well, what about the others?" He's like, "Well, we'll, we'll take the mother and daughter, but I don't know where every, I don't know where everybody else is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to hell with the thing, fend for themselves. We're getting out of here." Uh, but uh, but the little girl has gone off and is playing with the boy again. This is the this is that day. Yeah. Well, the mother has told her to stay in room, and then you know, as we all but she know, goes off with him anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the boy leads her out to play in the cemetery. Yeah. Which uh, you know is not a good a good thing. And they, they they play they play by burying the little girl's doll. Yeah. Oh, this is just with a, some of the loose earth next to an open grave. And I think that I love what all this that happens with the girl, the boy, and the girl's mother. I yeah. think it's just got some of the most amazing 
ideas and imagery, you know, just striking stuff. I mean, it's just an incredible sequence, this whole point well, from here on. And there's almost no way to uh, to do anything other than give this whole sequence short shrift just by yeah. s- discussing it because it really needs to be seen for maximum impact. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but the... but. The mother begins to uh, hunt. Uh, begins to be concerned. She's looking around for her daughter to know where she is. And starts starts hunting around for her. And the the image, the image where the little girl is uh, at the gates of the cemetery, mm-hmm. and is holding onto the bars of the gates mm-hmm. that are much taller than her. Yeah, and are obviously locked. She can't get them open. And you and she looks out over that that uh, open field that leads up to it and the villagers are just slowly walking toward the cemetery gate. Yeah, yeah. And it's just that image alone and once again mm-hmm. beautiful use of the widescreen and it's just creepy as hell. Mm-hmm. And what's even creepier is the girl is a little curious but she's not scared because right. she doesn't know really to be scared. Right. Um well the mom starts to hunt around for her. She's getting a little desperate. She's she, she she's trying to find her daughter. And uh, she sees the uh, oh oh she this is where she goes in she she goes to the the cemetery as well ends up in uh, this crypt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is where we see the countess for the second time once again not in the village right pointing toward you know her mm-hmm. never her never really being at that location the actress Helga Linnae yeah. never really being in that location <laughs> in my opinion but this crypt opens up slide you know the the, mm-hmm. the top of it slides to the side <laughs> mm-hmm. and out pops. A rather frizzy haired Helga Linnae. Yeah. And uh <clears throat> let's see, what happens actually there? I'm well, she scares I mean, <clears throat> um and I, I wrote down here somewhere the name of Violet's mother, which I think we never even hear in the film. It's like it, it's listed on IMDb and I can't even remember. I, I wrote it down somewhere what they call what her actual name is. And uh I won't say it's like Rachel or something. Uh yeah, they're probably not even close. Um somewhere Hold on, I'll add it. Yeah, yeah, find that. Yeah. Raquel? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, Violet's mother, Raquel, is, you know, the Countess touches her on the shoulder and she runs off and she manages to escape from the Countess, but she shuts herself up in a room and turns around and there is Ernst and Marcus and Godo very much in vamp form. Yep. And, well, and Caesar too. I think all four of them are there and they, they pretty much just like, you know, all tackle you know uh raquel and uh and and, and, it's we, over, and then yeah we figured that's it for her back in the cemetery the the villagers are coming into the cemetery and the boy and this is this is very odd yeah the boy doesn't appear to be a vampire no he certainly seems but to be he frightened see, of... yeah but he seems to be kind of frightened of the villagers mm-hmm. and he <clears throat> he, he's, he tries to hide violet mm-hmm. but she for whatever reason he he has her down on the ground and lays on top of her and keep it is trying to keep her from yelling mm-hmm. it is holding her down on the ground until the villagers walk past them there in the cemetery but he ends up smothering her by mm-hmm. the time they're past mm-hmm. and this really upsets them the little boy is yeah. weeping he he's realizes in tears. what he's done yeah that he's smothered her accidentally and he, he, so he drags Violet's body now to an open uh, to the open grave that they were playing near before, and puts her in and starts to cover her up. When he looks up and sees that her mother is coming into the cemetery, and she is obviously now a member of the undead, mm-hmm. and finds her daughter, and is visibly upset, and drags her out of the open grave, 
and then out of the cemetery and yeah. another creepy sequence. just amazing oh yeah just well and i love too this is just but there's a beauty within these creepy sequences there there's something very emotional about these yes. scenes from not only just the boy crime but i did just the whole idea of the mother who come probably dragging the girl away to drain her body you would think but there's just or but there's almost seems to be a little bit of a concern in the the yeah. va- like in in raquel even though she's a vampire you almost get the sense that she's still looking for her daughter in right. in almost like a motherly way and but and one of the things that affected me the most is because i just think it's in a beautiful bit of a visual concept there is when they bury the girl's doll and they bury it with one arm still still sticking, sticking out, out. Of the dirt. Yeah. and when the boy buries then after he accidentally smothers violet and buries her in the in the grave he, he does the exact same thing and and he buries her with just her arm uh-huh. sticking out and i was like god that's that's wonderful uh it's an amazing little connection thing. That, that, between didn't, the, yeah. that didn't need to be done no no it's just, a, just a, yeah an amazing little piece now, we don't see the little boy again. Right. So here's the question, and I'm sure yeah. the question is on your mind. Yes. He's apparently not one of the villagers, so he's mm. not one of this group of vampires right. who live in this town. Right. What the hell is he? Yeah, I feel like my thing, I can't. I feel like he's a ghost. I, I think that's probably the best He's answer. a ghost, yeah. and I, here's one that he is one of my theories, and again, I've got a couple, and I don't know if I can talk about it, but he's one of my theories as to who the burial at the very first of the film is. Yeah, because really? they're burying okay. somebody. Right, as we know, we talk about the film opens with a burial sequence and the right. body falls out of the coffin and it's covered with maggots and all this. We're never told who it is. And for all we know, it could very well have just been a sequence that was filmed as a shock sequence to start the film on some kind of powerful note and maybe it's not really supposed to mean anything. But my thought is that it maybe is supposed to be that that was supposed to be him that's buried maybe even years before, maybe not necessarily just right before the film starts, but maybe just back, but that, that was that he's actually, and, and that open grave that they're playing around that he buries Violet in, I'm assuming is, is the grave maybe that he came out of possibly. Oh, that's an interesting idea. But it's, but you're right. I think it's very obvious that he is not connected to the rest of no, obviously the village, not. that he's not, you know, and is actually aware of what they are. And so that's just, that's one of my theories for who the, if there is, like I said, if there is an explanation or something, we're supposed to guess it what this whole opening burial sequence meant, I thought possibly that's who that was supposed to be. Interesting, interesting. I um, Well, let's talk about the, the, the rest of the film here. Uh, briefly, I don't want to go into great detail, but I do want to go ahead and discuss out the rest of okay. the film. Um, Jack Taylor's character, Lewis and Alma, uh, he, night falls, he fixes the car, they go to get the hell out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a that's a lengthy sequence where the uh, the vampires are attacking them while mm-hmm. they're in the car yeah. as they're just trying to find a way to get the hell out of the town. Mm-hmm. And it's a very it's it's a well done sequence. There's some uh, some nice creepy uh, vampire squishing yeah. and uh, some some uh, so it's it's a, it's a good sequence and they do manage to get the hell out. Yeah. And also this is the point just to talk about another Klimovsky kind of a feeling echoing back to one of his other films is a lot of the parts of that, a lot of this film felt like people who own the dark to me. Yeah, yeah. Because, like you said, there's a lot of times when these villagers could just as easily be zombies or the, right. or the blind people stumbling around and, you know, I mean, they're dead or, or just, you know, it actually has, I thought a lot of it has more that feel from that film than, agree, than necessarily a vampire film. Well, they, they do make it out of out of the village. They get on the road and get out. Mm-hmm. And uh, once they're back on the main road, mm-hmm. you suddenly realize that it's not dark anymore. Mm-hmm. There's not this overcast sky. And he, and, Lewis makes the remark as yeah. well. It's like, yeah. oh my God, we've the been the sun. We've seen, yeah, we haven't seen the sun in two yeah. days. Yeah, 
And he even makes the remark that that's how those damn creatures were able to be out in the day. Yeah. Well, they hustled their they're, they're, they they they're headed to wherever they can go to to find police. They've got to find authorities because they've got to bring people back to this thing. But who or what should pop up in the back seat of the car? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. What we have is uh, the mother mm-hmm. pop up in the back seat of the car. And attack them. Oh, see now, was it the mother or oh, was wait, it the countess? I think oh, it's the countess. countess. I believe it's the countess. Oh, that's right. Okay. Once well, again, because she has the fangs, which that's the others right. don't. You know, so I believe it's the countess. Oh, now, you're right, you're now, right. one of the things that's hard to tell is because when they have Helga Linnae done up as the, in her vampire she mode. Looks, because they have the exact same hair color. And, and right. their hair is and even the, about the, the suit, same they're, length. They're all frizzed out. Yeah. When, she, she, when she's a vampire, it's all frizzed out. You're right. It, it is the countess. Oh, but listen, that's no. It was an easy mistake to because <coughs> well, remember. Well, so you almost had me wondering because now I'm thinking back. I'm thinking like, shit, was it the? Because I no, just no, assumed no, it was the right. countess. But yeah, which discounts my whole two sequences. This would be the third. If if that's Helga Linnae, then it's the third. Sequence. But once again, once again, she's not, not one film that that could have been right. filmed anywhere. Uh, in a way, it almost seems a little out of character for the countess to have done this. Like yeah. it almost seems like. You know, like the, you know, way. But I think in some ways, this may be a case where they felt like we have to have some kind of closure, some kind of sting at the end. You know? Yeah, and uh, and so yeah, so she's which in is the kind of sad it. because I, I love the ultimate end of this film. So yeah. um, she attacks them. Mm-hmm. Alma fights her off mm-hmm. with uh, what is it that she hits her in the forehead with? Yeah, I wasn't exactly Was clear. I wasn't exactly clear, and maybe if we had a full image, or maybe if this print had been a little better, and, and let's just say we haven't mentioned this yet. This is a very watchable print. This oh, it's is quite on good. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's got a lot of speckles, but there's only a couple of times where it maybe goes a little dark at times. You know, I mean, for the most part, even in the night scenes, you can pretty much oh, tell yeah. what's going on. Um, you know, obviously, we'd still always love to see a more pristine copy, but this is very watchable. This is on the DVD from uh, Code Red. Um, but I don't know if if there's another framing that we might have been able to see a little better. Oh, see, that's just it. I think I think we're supposed to be able to tell what it is he's handing to her, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. But it, she, he hit she hits the countess in the forehead with this thing, and it yeah. uh, it totally. Fu- I mean, whatever yeah, whatever, whatever it is, it works, is an, yeah. has an immediate effect on her. Right. And the and uh, she falls back and it kills her, and mm-hmm. her body begins to to deteriorate almost immediately. Mm-hmm. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, deteriorate. Just as disgustingly as the body we saw fall out of the coffin in the few first minute of the film. Well, now that you've mentioned that, that was my other theory. See, I wasn't See, sure. I, I was wasn't sure how far you were going to go into the ending no, no, of this, that, and all. That, so that's, that's actually good. because, yeah, I'm wondering if that whole opening sequence is the villagers burying the countess's body. In other words, we're seeing we're not seeing something. we're not we're seeing s- something that happens. First, we're seeing, we're seeing something, something that happens last. actually after yeah. this whole story. That this is yeah. like after just because of her Which would make deteriorating sense, with all yeah. the maggots, and we've seen that maggots. It's sort of a visual harkening back to that opening scene. So, so like I said, I mean, we'll, we well, you know, and it whatever. makes sense because um, they they drive along after the body collapses back there and begins to deteriorate. By the time they've gone a little bit further on, the body is gone, and they're just maggots sitting on the back mm-hmm. seat. Yeah, yeah. So they don't have any proof whatsoever when they go and talk to the cops right. who aren't totally blowing them off but are yeah. blowing them off pretty well. It's like, okay, yeah. well, look, you take us to yeah. this you, town he say, that you we've young never people heard of. Tend to, uh, yeah, basically what he's dancing around the fact that he thinks they've been dropping acid and, you, know, and yeah. you know, turning on, tuning out and all that, you know, <laughs> and dropping it well, out, whatever. <laughs> and watching television. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> You've been eating green M&M's. <laughs> So, they go to uh, 
they t- they they take the police out to where Tonya is, and they drive out to where the the crossroads are, and there's nothing there. Yeah, there is not even a road that goes to it. There's no village, mm-hmm. and has the cops standing there in the middle of the road says, "Hey, you, know, you yeah. can't villages don't get up and walk." You know, yeah, you, vi- you can't you know yeah. build and destroy a <laughs> village in a night. Come on, yeah. what are you what are you talking about here? And so we are left with the idea that uh, this place. Is Brigadoon. I mean, no. Is uh, <laughs> some uh, supernatural place that uh, they're never going to see again. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of content with that. And then the camera, as the uh, the end credits start to scroll, we pan to the left. Mm-hmm. And there, sitting beside the road, is a very much deteriorated mm-hmm. and overgrown... Rusted out bus. The very kind of bus, I would say, the very bus yeah. that they rode into that village on in the first place. Yes, but looking like it was rode in there like 30 years ago 30, or something. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Fascinating. I love that ending and lots, I love that final yeah. image. Yeah, lots of ambiguities in this film, lots of mysteries. You know, um, I don't mind it at all. I mean, I no. think it works in this context. You know, if, you're, if that kind of thing annoys you, you might find the film difficult to because so much is left unexplained. But if you're able to just go with it as they say i think that this film is ambiguous in a way that's you know very cleverly constructed and and uh not uh doesn't feel sloppily like it feels very intentionally no, no. ambiguous i mean there are a couple of i think we mentioned at least one yeah. point where you know the girl doesn't seem to have any reaction yeah after like seeing maybe this there's man some get his arm locked yeah off, maybe so. there's something kind of left that should have bridged that or something that you know yeah. kind of got left dangling there that uh, but uh well the um this this is and, and, and this is something that I kind of I'm kind of amused by. This very much like the last Beyond Nashy film that we covered, uh, Murder Mansion, mm-hmm. is a film that um, when you find people talking about it online, mm-hmm. uh, it both of these films seem to be the kind of movies that people stumble across mm-hmm. either on television mm-hmm. or in some uh, DVD collection or something like that. Mm-hmm. Don't know anything about, watch it, and are thoroughly thrilled and surprised by. It. Yeah. In other words, it's one that. They don't know anything about mm-hmm. and get a nice, a nice. They they they, they Maybe seem, their expectations. They, they feel it. They, they find a gem. They they they, yeah. they, all, they they seem to feel like they found mm-hmm. a little gem. Yeah. yeah, and I think that is uh, the the thread between the you know, murder mansion and this is both of these are hidden gems. Both yeah. of these movies are movies that. Uh, regardless of how wonderful the title Vampires Night Orgy is, mm-hmm. it's just not been that easy to see for no. quite some time. No. It has turned up in some uh, some public domain sets over over the years. This is about far the best release it's gotten. Yeah, not only yeah. because of that the the print is pretty nice and all that and uncut. I guess as far as I can tell, you know, uncut. But also the fact that it's paired with this is actually perfect because this could very well easily have turned up on seventies drive-ins because it's paired with Doctor Jekyll and the Werewolf. True, and you could have easily seen these. You, you know, you could imagine these two films. You know, turning up on the same drive-in screens in America during the seventies would have been a great double bill, and it's one that I that I I don't know if it that was actually a, a double bill that happened anywhere. Yeah, it may anywhere, not have, but, but it, boy, it sure could have. It could have <laughs> yeah, easily. It certainly know. could have. And the the thing is, this being a, a little hidden gem, it's all the more it's all the more wonderful to be able to see it and watch people's reactions to it and. Mm-hmm. You know, an appreciative audience. Mm-hmm. This is one that um, we used to talk about how we think uh, a modern audience might or might not take to some of these nineteen uh, sixties, seventies, and eighties mm-hmm. uh, European horror films. Mm-hmm. And this is one that I think um, uh, a receptive audience 
could really enjoy, much like Murder do. Mansion. Yeah. And like I say, reading online the reactions to this film and mm-hmm. to Murder mm-hmm. Mansion, it seems I'm right because these people are coming to it with you know absolutely no expectations, knowing nothing of it, and, mm-hmm. and walking away going, wow, that's a really good little film. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is at the heart of what I think is so wonderful about these types of movies is uh, there's a phrase that uh, I first heard Quentin Tarantino use a long time ago, which is talking about European horror films mm-hmm. and European uh, crime films, which is you have to forgive them a lot. Mm-hmm. You have to, in other words, you mm-hmm. have to kind of meet the film halfway. Yeah, you have to be step willing to world. step you into to, its world. Yeah, but the payoff for that is humongous. Yes, I mean it's just yes. a gigantic payoff yeah. Yeah. if you you're willing to give yeah, that exactly. Film you won't be the, sorry that you won't feel right. like you you know short short changed yourself by just you know by getting into this mindset by kind of you know. Letting the film yeah. work its magic on you. Yeah. Stop being, stop being, you know, the the asshole who wants to poke holes in it or laugh at the mm. fashions or be, yeah. you know, be, uh, you know, <laughs> silly about the mm. the relationships or the dialogue. Let the film work on you yeah. if you can let it work on you and yeah. see and, and see what you can find. And, th- and if you, if it's it's fun to watch people have that mindset walk into one of these things mm-hmm. and just get really surprised by it yeah uh, this yeah. is a good film this is one that i can thoroughly recommend if you have, if you have any interest whatsoever in your horror it's one that you need to go ahead and see and it's one that i think that uh uh it's a it, this uh, this is actually a neat little bridge to my mind between the kind of uh difference between spanish horror that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast and italian horror because mm-hmm. there is that there there is a lot of that atmosphere and creepiness that is a nice bridge between this kind of thing and the kind of thing that even the super grotesque stuff that Fulci was doing in the early '80s yeah. has as well. It's, yeah. You know, it's, uh, uh, City of the Living Dead yeah. has a lot of this kind of atmosphere as well, punctuated by hideous grotesque <laughs> things as well. Right. But this is a nice bridge because if you like that atmosphere, if that is one of those things that you've enjoyed about those more grotesque films. You might also be able to enjoy it in one that isn't hmm. going to, you know, gouge eyes out of skulls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, there's a, you know, there's an arm that gets lopped off right in front yeah. of you, and there's a finger that turns up under a piece of meat. But hey, that's yeah. really the extent of yeah, it's how not a very graphic film, film, really. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's even, not. Yeah, the way this film earned its uh, its R rating is 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 definitely the the nudity and the mm-hmm. you know and the horror elements, mm-hmm. right? So, um, on the one to ten scale, uh, I end up. I can't decide if it's a seven or an eight. It's somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. But where do you fall? I, I gave it an eight, kind of having that oh, yeah. same sort of yeah. question you did, you know. Because, uh, uh, but when I got to thinking about the the films, whatever the flaws that it have are very very small, and 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 uh, and I think so much of it is so well done. Uh, I, and I, I I really love the story, and I, again, like I said before, I I, I totally. I enjoy the things that it doesn't let us know because it, that it doesn't feel that it had to do in order to make it an effective yeah. story because yeah. it, the whole thing with the village itself, you know, so many films in this case, we would have had to have gotten some kind of backstory on the village. Correct. If nothing else, at the very end, I think it's in, I think it's cool that at the end, the policemen, they go say, you haven't even heard of the film. And so many films, I mean, you haven't heard of the village, excuse me, so many films would have had them say, Oh, you know, would have had them say like, "Oh, Tonya, that existed back," you know. But the fact that there's never, they don't even aware of, you know, there's no backstory it. whatsoever. I mean, to this village, and I think that was actually really 
really nice. Um, well, what's funny know. is you mentioned that, and that, right. and, and and the film being willing to have those ambiguities and to refuse to uh, explain them out and give us the backstory of the countess, yeah, or yeah, how the village came to be, and all of that crap that really isn't relevant to the mm. to enjoying, or even who movies. this little boy is, like right. who, who is, you know. Well, that's another thing that I really liked. To, to bring it full circle about mm. the film It Follows that I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast. We never learn in that movie what the hell this threat is. Yeah. yeah. Never, you've never learned. They don't even mm. try to explain it to you because the characters in the movie that we're following have no way to know. Mm. You're talking about It Follows, the film. Yeah, that you in, just, in the yeah, film It Follows. Yeah, yeah, there's no, they don't yeah, know they have, yeah. what the hell this threat is. They haven't yeah. got a clue. Yeah. So we never learn right. either because they have no way of figuring it out. They, there's absolutely no way for them to know. Yeah, and those ambiguities. It's, I, though we we talk about we talk about it every now and then is that there's this modern thing for the past twenty or thirty years is like we've got to explain everything down to the yeah. final detail about why yeah. and how this exists and where it came from and its origins and they're like no we don't yeah no we don't we have there's no yeah. shh no we don't <laughs> yeah just give us the story mm-hmm. move forward and tell us what we need to know. If you failed, we'll let you know. Yeah, right. Another thing I love about this film, and, and I think it's a, kind of a testament to the uh, things that Klamowski was willing to play around with or the ideas he was willing to try, because this is obviously not too far removed in terms of years um, at all. I mean, as a, uh, maybe it was the same year as a Werewolf Shadow. Um, but I think maybe, if nothing else, is maybe the year after Werewolf Shadow was made, I think. And uh, Werewolf Shadow, I think, was, was it... 72 or was it more like 70 71 I 71 so it's a couple of years before this but when we did werewolf shadow we were of course um so impressed by his depiction of vampires in werewolf shadow of the vampire women uh we've talked about how uh patty shepherd um and barbara capel in in werewolf shadow the vampires are depicted in almost a Kind of a almost as fairy tale kind of creatures, you know, the way they <clears throat> move and tell all everything they do is in slow motion and they dance. Seventy one, I was right. Yeah, okay, and they twirl each other around and dance and kind of, you know, they yeah. do all these and they're always in slow motion. Again, they're just these very almost like magical creatures. I love how here he just takes the exact different tact with it uh, and makes them these grubby, you know. Uh, peasant, you know, villagers, and seems to go. Uh, we didn't even talk about the, the the one villager that's just got this that oh, turns this huge neck goiter, goiter, this hideous like huge yeah. goiter. I mean, like uh, you know, he's he's like he really just went out of his way to totally do a different take and just make it almost seem like a, this kind of malignant disease, you know, that they have. Yeah. Other than the countess, of course, you know. But, but again, I just think it's it's nice to see that he he was definitely not trying to retread past glories or whatever, you know, he was taking a totally different stance on his whole, just another interesting, and we saw it again with, with of course, with, uh, um, The Strange Loves of the Vampires, you know, it was a completely different take on the yeah. vampires from these two films, and so yeah. I think his the way he Yeah, you're right, I hadn't thought about it, but you do, yeah, you're right, you're, there's at least three examples right there, and then there's, he also made Saga of the Draculas, which is a another Yeah, and variation. I still haven't seen yeah, it, but yeah. I, I would just, yeah, so what but he his, did. But his yeah. portrayal, there was, there's no, uh, <clears throat> There's no real one to one. He 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 tries. He uh, the three examples that you've already seen. He Leon Klamowski definitely took a different tack each yeah. time he came at the vampire mythos. You're right. I mean, I, I think you'd have that. to put him right up there with uh, Jean Roland as in terms of like you know fascinating depictions of vampires. Oh, know, I agree. Right? I so, agree. 
Uh, and uh, you know, Roland is is definitely an acquired taste and something that uh, no, sure, a, sure. even a, even a lot of Euro horror fans really can't Just, find themselves yeah. getting into because he's it's not his, easy. His, his pacing, is not, his pacing yeah. is Roland's stuff is the pacing is very languid. Uh, the there uh, the uh, there the, if you were ever going to talk about films where in which very little happens, those would be where the stories films. are very thin, very threat. Thr- yeah, yeah, it's very all about the imagery, all, the dream. It's all about the imagery. Of, it's yeah. all about the uh, the emotional uh, the emotion that bubbles mm. up from mm. the imagery and from the uh, the actions of the usually completely nude women who yeah. <laughs> parade yeah. around in the storylines. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, 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 that's that's interesting. Well, eventually, we're going to have to cover uh, Saga of the Dracula. Yeah, so you can get a look at uh, Klamowski's. I guess at least for us, our fourth variation on the vampire theme mm-hmm. from him. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I guess we can, at the end of the day, recommend mm-hmm. seeing. Yeah. Now, did you say you said you're wavering between a seven or eight? I said I give it an eight. Did you well, settle? I did, on, yeah, what did you I, I kind of I ended up settling on a, on a seven just because of my irritation with the music. Yeah. Well, the music um, is yeah. The music definitely. It's uh, the only thing is. that really knocks it down from an eight for me is that disc the the uh, the sometimes inappropriate mm-hmm. music. So sure. I mean, because I really. Honestly, if I allowed myself this, it would be like a seven point five. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I understand. But that's just you know, mm-hmm. that's me. But uh, I tell you what, let's uh, take another break. Uh, we'll have uh, I think we'll it's have Dan a Dan o'clock. Is yeah, it Dan o'clock. Now? <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll have a visit from Dan, and then we'll come back in and we'll dive into the mailbag and see what people have got to say to us. Nobody home in the neighborhood. We visit someone who's got stuff that's good and steal it. We can steal it. We'll break open the door, but we'll do no harm and hope they don't have a burglar or alarm to nail us or they'll jail us. Hi there. I put my sneakers on. That way it's harder for someone to hear us when we walk around. Sure, I put my mask on too. This is Mr. Gooley's house, isn't it? That's right! He's not home. That's good. Let's see what he's got here. Oh, the cabinet's locked. Sometimes we can't do things alone. Sometimes we need help to do things. That's why I have my friend, Mr. Crowbar. Busted that sucker open in no time. Sure. everyone it's dan your favorite band in the field here just want to let you know that uh, uh it's nice enjoying the weather outside it's getting warmer hope uh all of you nashketeers are enjoying the warmer weather uh keeping with my promise um, i'm going to do part two of the uh, spangoli horror host um revival here and go into rich coats now a couple things here um i was lucky enough to get a, um, a clip where um, Jerry G. Bishop, the original Spengoli, pretty much goes through and narrates um, a history of Rich Coase and uh, does most of my work for me here. Um, but it's just really nice to hear um, Jerry talk about Rich 
and um, you get to hear some of Rich's shtick. Um, if you see him on MeTV now as Svengoolie, he's a lot more family friendly. However, um, there's still an edge there. Um, he just doesn't show it because uh, he wants the, uh, well, it's, it's, on, it's on a prime time, pretty much, even though it's 10 o'clock. They wanted a, uh, MeTV wants a family friendly show, so he keeps the humor pretty clean. Um, kind of the same thing that uh, happened with uh, Wolfman Mac in, in Detroit. They, uh, he had promised RTV a very family-friendly show, and uh, that's what basically Svengoolie is now, if you watch him on MeTV. Um, he's taken a lot of the older shows, brushed them off, added one or two new bits, and um, kept them kind of clean and, and, and not edgy hardly at all. However, um, there is a, uh, a bit here um, in the history where um, they have a clip of Rich doing his Mr. Robbers impression, which is basically a Mr. Rogers parody about a criminal who goes to a different house every week and carries a video camera with him and does his show while he's stealing items from the person's house. So we get to hear a little bit of Mr. Roberts, which I thought was hilarious. Um, so there is that in this bit. But uh, we'll go ahead and we'll let uh, Jerry talk about Rich and about uh, Svengoolie. And there was a period there where there wasn't a Svengoolie on in Chicago. Um, he did, Rich did get back on with the U, which is a, a TV station in Chicago. And uh, Jerry and him talked about it. And that particular show, which is the one he's still doing now, um, they dropped Son of Svengoolie and became just plain old Svengoolie. Because let's face it, Rich has been Svengoolie a lot longer than Jerry has as far as a, uh, a functioning horror host. So let him become plain old Svengoolie. So, Here's Jerry talking about Rich, and hope you enjoy it. We just recently completed over 500 shows just on this station, and at the time of this taping, it's been almost exactly 24 years since I put on the top hat to continue the Svengooli family tradition. Oh, for the sake of future reruns, it's been almost exactly 25 years, or maybe 26 years, or maybe 20... Shut up! You make me nervous! <clears throat> and in those many years, the person who has benefited the most and deserved it the least is my head writer, Rich Coase, who actually claims to be the brains behind this program. Well, I've got news for him. There are no brains behind this program. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yet, Coase has used me to gain big rewards, like being inducted into the prestigious National Television Academy Silver Circle. So I decided to get the info from somebody who knows the truth about Coase. Just watch. Talk about horror vision. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have a confession to make. I, Jerry G. Bishop, Chicago broadcasting legend and Patriarch of the Svengoolie family, am to blame. I am responsible for getting Rich Coase into Chicago television when, in 1971, I decided to use comedy material submitted by a young Northwestern student from Morton Grove and took Rich under my wing, uh, well, the, the, the wing of my rubber chicken, actually, while doing the original Svengoolie show on WFLD. That's when it was good. Uh, Rich wrote bits for me, played characters, provided artwork, uh, ended up as my producer, sidekick, and we went to NBC Radio in Chicago. Uh, during that time, he also worked with radio comedy legend Dick Orkin, co-writing the final group of Chicken Man episodes. 
and writing two segments for PBS's Electric Company. A major milestone came in 1978 when I agreed to give Rich permission to continue the Svengoolie franchise as son of Svengoolie, which after numerous battles, he finally got off the ground almost 25 years to this day, June of 1979. Influenced by versatile Chicago TV entertainers like Ray Rayner, Bill Jackson, and <clears throat> uh, me, Rich made Son of Sven Gulli more than just a horror movie show, but a full-fledged comedy program. There's a fragrance that's like decay, and they call it deadly. Catch a whiff, you'll faint dead away, and you'll call it deadly. Nobody home in the neighborhood We visit someone who's got stuff that's good And steal it We can steal it We'll break open the door But we'll do no harm And hope they don't have a burglar alarm To nail us Or they'll jail us Hi there I put my sneakers on That way it's harder for someone to hear us When we walk around Programming You'd like to see more of Wonder Woman? So would I, but that's as small as a costume gets. And in his very first year, won his very first Chicago Emmy Award. Son of Sven Gulli became a local icon, winning more awards and even providing Chicago with its first televised 3D movie. When his original program was canceled, Rich freelanced and made numerous local pilots till his triumphant return to WFLD, now a Fox station. This happened in 1989, where he began The Coes Zone, again winning an Emmy for that show's first year. Once there was a former television host who wanted to make a comeback, but when he approached the TV executives, their opinion was obvious. So he realized the only way to reappear on the video screens of Chicago was to break into the TV signal. And using state-of-the-art equipment and several 9-volt batteries, he invaded the airwaves of Fox 32. Once every week, much to the dismay of station management, Rich Coes opens the video viaduct that leads to the Coes Zone. When the Fox network decided that each local station should have a live host, Rich made that transition, combining old-time showmanship, strange characters, even educational content in programs that echoed the Chicago kids shows of the past. Management couldn't understand why the adult demographics during the kids block had risen. Rich also hosted various live broadcasts like the New Year's Eve countdown. And about this time, Rich also became a weatherman. Even he doesn't know why. I'm Rich Coase, and I can't tell if I'm a vampire, weatherman, or just a bad professional wrestler. But Jim Tillman, I'll take you on in front of any map, any time. We've got the chilling forecast coming up, and my tag team partner, Kenny McReynolds. <laughs> the boy is crazy. In late 1994, Rich had the good fortune to become part of the new Channel 26, The U, a station that remembers the local roots of Chicago television. Rich was instrumental in the original launch of the station, hosting the station's first day as the U with Morton Downey Jr. on a Munsters marathon. Rich has continued to work in various aspects of the U, on camera and off, 
better off, uh, hosting, writing, producing shows, promotions, commercials, and hosting Stoogapalooza, the popular weekly showcase for classic comedy. Rich has worked with some of the biggest stars in the business, and his fame has spread. When TV Guide recently saluted TV horror hosts, among the elite few singled out was Sven Gulli. Generations of Chicago viewers have come to love the television contributions of Rich Coates. Yeah! No matter who he's been. Usually in the middle of the night, when you don't expect us. <laughs> it's kind of cool in here. Did somebody turn up the air conditioning? Get out of here. Go ahead, do your commercial. And stop that laughing. Uh, hey, excuse me, Sven? Oh, no, it's Jay Lamo. Well, hello there, young man. Uh, hey, what's the idea? You, you, how come you didn't invite me onto your show while I came in town here? Vampires and mommies, you'll meet big dummies when you shop spinners. Are you kidding? Do it yourselfers. We guarantee you won't be bitten by high prices at Spenards. So, if you're building a shed for a daddy who's dead, or just getting chummy with some insulated wrap for mummy, your wallet has more teeth at Spenards. This promo is adjourned. Before we go on to the music portion of my segment, um, I do want to relate a little bit of news here. There is a new Polnashi DVD out that's an American release. However, as you can tell how I'm not really excited, it is the uncut version of Tomb of the Werewolf, uh, the one film that we rated bottom of the barrel, unfortunately. Um, but there are people that like it. Um, it is a film with Paul Nagy in it. Um, it is the last time he did play Volodymyr Daninsky, and it's probably one of the only times we will hear Paul Nagy speak English in our language and having it not be a dub voice, being his own voice. Um, I know that isn't much of a con of a consolation, um, and most of us people here, um, you know, you you know how Troy Rod and I feel about the film. Um, we didn't mince any words, and we probably never will when it comes to Paul. But um, just wanted to let you know that it is out there. Uh, the DVD is thirteen bucks. Um, it's also streaming on a couple places, um, including uh, Amazon Video On Demand, pretty sure. Um, but just wanted to let you know, it is a bit of Paul Nashi news, and this is, uh, for the most part, the Nashi cast. And uh, we want to have as much Paul Nashi content as we can month to month, even though uh, the selection of movies are getting a little thin around the gills. Um, this is still our hero. This is still our main guy, and we love him dearly. And uh, so we just wanted to pass on that little bit of news about the um, the Unliving DVD, which is the title of the uncut 95-minute version of the movie that was, unfortunately, Tomb of the Werewolf. Trying to keep things different and fresh in my musical segment, I thought I'd do something a little different this, this, uh, this uh, time. Um, I've actually got two songs um, 
my buddy Mike here that is a listener of the Nazi cast, Mike uh, Totino, had sent me a copy of the soundtrack to How the Devil, which is kind of humorous in itself because it's a readily available soundtrack to a film that is not commercially available anywhere in the world. But we all have our, our bootleg copies and we relish them. Um, but there's there's a song here. Uh, the All of the music, by the way, was uh, composed by uh, Fernando Garcia Morcillo. And um, it's all electronic music, basically. 80s, early 80s kind of electronic new romantic new romantics kind of a thing new wave new romantics um, kind of a feel to it and it reminded me an awful lot the song i'm going to play for you it's called uh, blood in the bathroom which is a great title by the way it reminded me a lot of what bob ezrin was doing with alice cooper on dada which was um the last album that cooper did before beating his alcoholism for good um, doesn't remember a whole lot about recording the album, um, but Ezrin had enough of a foot as far as being the producer and, and being in control of everything that it did have a cohesive feel to it, and there was a lot of experimentation with electronic music and drum machines and things like that. So this uh, song off of the Paul Nashie soundtrack for Hell of the Devil, Blood in the Bathroom, reminds me a lot of Formerly Warmer, which is off of Dada, so I thought I'd play him back to back, get your guys' opinion on um, how much they actually complement each other, how much they sound alike in a way, and um, I also have one question for Rod and for Troy, it's got me thinking, um, going through and recording uh, certain things here for the cast, my first record that I ever bought with my own money was Indian Lake by the Cow Cells. Now that's kind of embarrassing, but I thought I'd share that with everyone. I need to ask Rod and Troy, what were the first records that you bought with your own money? What band was it? What song was it? Really curious to know. And on that note, here's the musical segment.
all the mops and brooms keep him company misconceived of the family formerly warmer pulls up the covers to hide in his wrinkled bed no dreams go in Thank you once again, Dan. It's always great to get a contribution from you, mm-hmm. and always Definitely. fun to have something to add to the show. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. God knows we don't babble enough. <laughs> All right, let's dive into the mailbag here. We've got three different pieces from only two different correspondents. Mm-hmm. So that means, people, there's more than enough space for you to write into us and let us know what you think. So let's start with this. we got uh, Michael, who we've heard from before. He's our buddy from downstate. Maybe we should call yeah. it that. Yeah, that's right. From from, from uh, yeah, I'll say. Okay, he says uh, he says hi. Our, 
Trot and Roy. Trot and Roy. That's from that's my 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 hideous mispronunciation of our own fucking names from last episode. Okay, he says, "You guys did a damn good show on wax." My copy was on its way when I listened to the podcast, passing through the hands and under the trampling feet of various Necrons subhumans <laughs> of in a USPS garb. Uh, in, in USPS garb. I normally hate it when podcasters don't go in-depth in their examination of a film for fear of spoilerizing it, but this was one time I'm glad you guys tread lightly. It really whet my appetite for the main course. <laughs> main course in wax of course. yes yes nice uh, i may write later and give my take on the film but i expect to be in agreement with you fellows since my tastes normally coincide with yours it'll be interesting to find out yeah when troy mentioned ripley's in gatlinburg that's the ripley's ripley's mm-hmm. believe it or not museum in gatlinburg mm-hmm. uh it reminded me of when my dad and i used to take the two-hour trek to hang out in gatlinburg back in the 70s and 80s Hell, you could even get around there back then without fighting a wall of human flesh every step. <laughs> anyway, true. I remember those days too. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my favorite haunt was World of the Unexplained, formerly Dr. Gardner's Museum of Magic and Superstition. Every time we went to Gatlinburg, I would linger in the museum for an hour or two staring at the exhibits, especially the Naked Hot Witch, <laughs> and meditating on all things spooky and mysterious. The museum was open from 1972 to 1985. I cried a tear when I heard that it shut down. I still have one of the souvenir booklets, which I wouldn't take anything for. Rod, that's pretty cool that you grew up in Chad- in the Chattanooga area watching Dr. Shock and Dingbat. Tommy Reynolds and Don East always put on a good show and got away with a lot of shite in the Bible Belt. I remember seeing the Blood Island flicks uncut on Shock Theater. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it gave us school kids a lot to talk about the following <laughs> Monday. <laughs> I always thought John Ashley was the was one blessed dude to get to fondle Angelique Pettyjohn like that. Seeing those seeing those made me fall in love with Filipino horror, Filipino horror, especially the chlorophyll monster and Angelique, of course. Yeah. Well, see, he says seeing those. Now, does he mean seeing those films, or does he mean seeing those as in Angelique <laughs> Pettyjohn's like uh, let's just say charms? And, uh, I would uh, say films, but yeah. hey, what the hell? Uh, by the way, I don't know if Michael's aware of this, but I have sought this sought this stuff out because. First of all, Angelique Pettyjohn, for those of you who don't know, uh, first uh, first place most people ever saw her was in the uh, ep- the second season episode of Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, called The Gamesters of Triskelion back yeah. in uh, 1967. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angelique Pettyjohn's a, a stack- statuesque, well-endowed female mm-hmm. who uh, is quite pretty. Mm-hmm. But uh, a few years ago I learned that Angelique... Uh, in the '80s, fell on hard times and uh, became a porno actress. Yeah, I heard. Yeah, uh, I have. Uh, I'm not not too proud to, to mention <laughs> that I have. I have sought out some of her mm-hmm. uh, her uh, pornographic work, mm-hmm. and I'm quite a fan mm-hmm. of all things Miss Pettyjohn yes. from Star Trek all the way through <laughs> the uh, Ascension or the Final Frontier. The Final the, Frontier of whatever. Yes, exactly. Fleshy, That's a good fleshy way to Frontier. Yeah. Fleshy Frontier. That's good. Uh, so if you were unaware of that, Michael, you might be curious to seek it out yourself. The interwebs are a wonderful <laughs> tool for such searches. Also, and I meant to, uh, after I read it, I meant to research this before coming to the episode here, so I'm hoping I'm going to get this wrong, but he mentions the place that, I was, and I know the place he's talking about in Gatlinburg, the Museum of the Unexplained, and my memory of it, uh, and, and I'm not sure what age Michael is, and I may be an oldster compared to him, but in my earliest days of going to Gatlinburg, 
it was actually called, my memories, it was actually called the Witchcraft Museum. Whoa, really? And uh, was that way for a few years. We went into it. I mean, it was a regular on our, our visits, me and my family's visits to uh, Gatlinburg. We'd go in there. And I, and uh, now, unless I'm confusing it with another place, I'm pretty sure it's the same place. And I'm guessing, I never heard this, but I would guess that probably some Bible thumpers got uh, 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 complained about the name because it yeah. changed names several times, keeping the same exhibits, you know, which among others had this wonderful, like, big Baphomet kind of devil figure that was inside, you know. They had they wow. had this whole haunted graveyard segment, uh, uh, unless that was in the Ripley's, uh, believe it or not, museum, but I don't think so. I think this is all in the Museum of the Unexplained. Um, but another memory I have of it is that for a while, I, and again, I'll have to just Google this and see if, you know, people have written some sort of historical thing on it, but uh, I seem to remember that for a while when you went in there, they actually had the narration to the museum was done by Leonard Nimoy. I think they recorded Leonard Nimoy's wow, really? voice, I think, and that they were, if I think I remember that right, that they recorded, did a, that Leonard Nimoy recorded kind of an overall kind of, that would describe the exhibits as you went through, you know. Now, again, unless this was just like some sort of fever dream I had, you know, and that's, I mean, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go on the web. Maybe, and, maybe, maybe you watched too many episodes of In Search of. As well, see, exactly, you know, and it, but I think it was around that time that he was doing that kind of stuff, you know, where yeah. he was in, so they were getting him because, because I know it's, that. It's not inconceivable, yeah. yeah. But I believe that this museum just, what, I almost feel like, uh, well, see, it was Ripley's that actually caught fire at one point uh, and burned, which has now been built back. But uh, the Museum of the Unexplained may still be there in Gatlinburg under a different name, or at least some of the exhibits may have survived. But uh, uh, but Michael and I will have to get together and see what we can piece together as far as the history of that place, because it was it was awesome. I mean, every time we went, I, my, my parents knew I had to go to Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, and I had to go to the museum, <laughs> the Witchcraft Museum, you know. For the you know, because I was just a little devil. That's all. <laughs> I'd be curious to find out. I'll be I'll be interested. In I'll try and have some info about next episode. So uh, right, anyway, right. go ahead. Uh, continuing with Mike's uh, with Michael's longish email here, he says, "Here's another suggestion for a podcast, either Beyond Nashi or A Bloody Pit, uh, Night of the Devils from 1972. This flick hit me between the eyes. Director uh, direction by Giorgio Ferrioni, who also did Mill of the Stone Women." Starring Gianni Garco uh, and Augustine Belli. It's another telling of the Verdelac. Mm. Uh, incredibly effective and enjoyable. I almost wept for the poor madman at the end. Another great Euro horror gem. Uh, yes, Night of the Devils is a, a yeah, favorite from mine. Yeah, a favorite see, of mine from way back. I have not seen that when you said it's on, you have it on Blu ray. Uh, it is now out on Blu ray. I have it as well. Cool. Uh, I have not watched the Blu ray, hideously mm. enough. Yeah. Uh, and, now, and now it's stuck in my storage unit, so now I'm going to have to find it and dig <laughs> it out. But uh, the uh, Night, Night of the Devils from 1972 is a pretty damn good little film. It is a uh, retelling of the Verdelac story, which of course was done uh, by Mario Bava as one of the segments with uh, the starring the fabulous Boris Karloff in mm. Black Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wonderful, wonderful movie. Yeah, our second mention of the Verdelac in one episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. The uh, Night of the Devils, that's a, that's a damn fine choice and one that uh, may well become an episode of a podcast uh eventually yeah yeah he says troy i've been fortunate enough fortunate enough to score several of those distinctive dummies figures mm-hmm. i have the first hammer uh, Migo style set that seems to sell for around 500 500 dollars a figure now yeah some insane collector gave over 1500 dollars for the dracula figure a few weeks ago jesus man this stuff yeah goes up quick i also have the great vincent price set you mentioned their one-sixth scale figures are even better. I have the Count Yorga, uh, the Golden Vampire, Arthur Grimsdyke, oh, Kurt Barlow, and a few others. Lately, I picked up the Hammer Yeti from the second Mego-style Hammer series. Great stuff. 
I didn't even know they made a Yeti. Yeah, I wasn't even aware yet that they had made a Yeti. That's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, he's right. Those 1-6 scale figures are pretty awesome. I, the only one I, you know, I, I congrats to him for being able to afford those things. You know, I've, yeah, got, really. I've got a Christopher Lee Dracula uh, that I got several years ago before the whole 1-6 scale thing when it was just getting launched, you know, and I, I picked up this great Christopher Lee Dracula for probably about 50 bucks, which I thought was okay. That, that's reasonable. That's not bad, for, yeah. But, and I remember at the time thinking, man, it would be awesome if they did just a whole series of these Hammer figures. Well, they did. Unfortunately, uh, by the time they started doing them, they figured out that they could get people to pay $150 or $180 for them. And so that, so, <laughs> so he's still the only one I have. <laughs> and I also have a Vincent Price from uh, uh, House on Haunted Hill, uh, Frederick yep, yep. Lauren. Figure, right up which, there on the shelf staring at us right quite, now. Yeah, which is quite, quite impressive. But anyway. Uh, he says, I have all, uh, I was always very disappointed that Marks or MPC never did a proper large monster playset in the Monster Kid 60s or Monster Kid 60s, so I made my own custom one. I mention it here because I was influenced partially by Euro horror movies as well as classic monster movies and magazines and even Lovecraft. There is even an homage to El Hombre Lobo in it, mm. the uh, Nashi. <laughs> The MPC werewolf figure represents a character named Arnando Jose Alvarez, Mm. whom the girls always fall in love with. (laughs) That Nashi musk at work. I posted it on the Universal Monster Army website under Classic Monster Toys as custom monster playset. I've attached some pictures, and I'm going to have to post yeah, these Yeah, we're going to have to. They're just they're awesome. He did a great yeah. job. I mean, because, man, they, we would have died if we had this kind of set when we were little. Cause, yeah. uh, and uh, I was going to say, too, Michael, you know, you've got this great uh, cemetery uh, as kind of the centerpiece of the town here, and if you... If you found like a more modern kind of man and woman and a motorcycle and then like a maybe a chauffeur figure an old car, you could actually convert this into a murder mansion version, you know, variation, you know, variant. It's true. Now. Yeah. God, you're looking at the picture. You're right. <laughs> uh, he says, I'm also glad to hear that you guys are covering Vampire's Night Orgy next. That film is big fun and one of my favorite Klamowski's. Code Red really came through with that excellent DVD double feature of that film and Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf. And any film with Euro horror, for, Euro horror fertility goddess Helga Linné <laughs> strutting around is well elevated. Yes, <laughs> I still recall it. Finally, get, I still recall finally getting to see Hot Helga in all her nude glory in BCI's uncut DVD for Horror Rises from the Tomb. BCI's demise is truly lamentable. Yes, it is. Uh, sorry to wax overlong, mm-hmm. uh, and for the bad mm-hmm. pun. Used dudes are doing a fantastic job. Thanks for a really fun podcast, fellow Tennessean, and still in the Chattanooga area, Michael. You know, Michael, if we if Rod and I ever make it back to a Chattacon, uh, yeah, we yeah, will, we'll we will to... look you up because we used to go to Chattacon year after year. Haven't been in several years, but someday we hope to some make it back down there for that. And if we do, we'll make sure you. Uh, Come out and have some have some beers with us and do some people watching at because uh, it's <laughs> yes, a place the, to do it. The, the freak watching at Chattacon is <laughs> is heavy duty, and the fact that the beer flows like water is always a plus. Yes. So, so uh, but Michael's not done with us yet. Uh, I don't know. We got to we, be, we got he a actually had a follow up, but we didn't have to wait to get his reaction to Wax uh, because uh, he did wrote right did see it and, and wrote about it. And so he says, "Hi again, Rod and Troy. I saw Wax and really enjoyed it." All the winks and nods to horror fans is much appreciated. Jack Taylor was perfectly cast as Dr. Knox. Jack is a Euro-horror icon and always a joy to watch. After Knox delivered the line, sadism, cannibalism, madness, I call it science, 
My mind immediately shot back to that silliness from Fury of the Wolfman where the hysterical assistant responded to the authentical mutants <laughs> BS <laughs> with, this can't be scientific, this can't be scientific. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, agree with, I agree with Michael. That, uh, and, that, and that phrase is the best phrase ever I've heard to describe Fury of the Wolfman. <laughs> uh, the, or it'd be more, you could change it to, this can't be cinematic, is how we would, could describe that. <laughs> but uh, he says, Fury may be a chaotic mess, but at least it gave us that bit of hilarity. Also, it was great to see Lone Fleming again, albeit briefly. I love her in Tombs of the Blind Dead. I agree with you guys about Wax being a bit padded, but overall, a bit of fun film. Likewise, I agree with you and give it a 6 out of 10. He says, You should do an episode of the Nashi cast giving Nashi fans much-needed current information about how to obtain the films on home video. You could devote one or two minutes to each of Nashi's movies, as well as the films covered in the Beyond Nashi episodes, and go over any available versions and if they are still in print or on the secondary market or gray market. The quality of said version, what video company issued it, special features, what we may expect to pay, etc. I know you gave much of this info when you covered these films, but a lot of it has changed. It would be of great value to have all this current info in one episode, or maybe a two-parter considering the time involved to properly cover all this, and the side trips. <laughs> side there, trips, there not would be, us. There would be side we trips, would, yes. yes. He says, you might even delve into the special antenna a bit. I'm currently rearranging my DVD Blue collection, and I'm devoting a special section to Senor Nashi. There are probably a lot of us on the, on the hunt for these films, and you could do us a great service by imparting your considerable knowledge of collecting Nashi upon us. Thanks, fellas. Best wishes, Michael. You know, um, it's, I, just the other day, I just, out of random, I, I think it was actually his email here that inspired me, I went ahead and, and did a, you know, just kind of did put Nashi's name into Amazon and you know, surprisingly, or, you know, and I guess nicely to see that uh, um, while so many of his DVDs have gone out of print, uh, a lot of those still aren't commanding a huge price yet on on, on Amazon, you know, through the secondary okay. markets. Um, uh, and actually, there are some that Amazon even still seems to list as having a copy or two still in stock, even though they're out of print. And so, you know, it still might enough. be a good time if you're trying to grab whatever you can Nashi wise on DVD um, you know and as far as Blu-ray goes I mean we're, we're, there's still a dearth of really any Nashi yeah. available the BCI did one Blu-ray uh, double, double feature, feature. Yeah. and now do you what have you heard of as far as these couple of German what is it that um, what's the I've heard company? no new information about new video releases yeah uh, I mean there's been a couple of German releases. Blu-rays that especially it's eventually supposed to be a 10 part series but I don't believe they're going to be either English subtitled or dubbed I don't think I think they're yeah, just the, going to be the, German the, and Spanish the the English, yeah, the they're English friendliness. Expensive, I think, so. They're pretty expensive. The English friendliness of them is questionable at best, and so I, I, I I'm excited that they're being released. Me too. Regardless, yeah, me too. Because um, there's that faint hope within me that if they do well, mm-hmm. somebody somewhere will mm-hmm. think, oh well, maybe we could, you know, maybe we could license them for the United States as well. Mm-hmm. But um, no, nothing so far. There's a, there's a. Okay, I have I have a hope. I have a there's this little kernel, this little little flame that has been within me for a few months now that I am now going to f- let out into the open and fan it a little bit and let you know that what I'm wondering and what I'm scared to ask this particular company mm-hmm. is I'm wondering now that uh, Arrow Video has started releasing. Yeah. Blu-rays and DVDs here in the United States as well as in Britain, mm-hmm. whether or not they might be making some moves into Nashi films or Spanish horror, either one. They have not as yet, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And I don't even know but if they the company... Might be the, they might be the likeliest candidates if anybody's Correct. going to do it. Correct. It might be... Um, 
They might. Who mm. the hell knows? Yeah. But I really do feel like um, I need to send them a letter, <laughs> mm-hmm. S- shoot them an email, something, mm-hmm. and simply ask. Mm-hmm. But the reason I haven't so far is mm-hmm. I'm terrified to get back the response of, oh, no, we're not really interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, the, the market doesn't really seem to support that kind of thing or whatever the response might be that yeah. would be a negative response. So mm-hmm. I think that I probably need to do that. Yeah. But well, I you certainly you certainly dread it. Yeah, I mean, you certainly do feel like the 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 Nashi's reputation has grown such to the extent that if somebody did do really nice, respectable video releases, that they would move some copies. You know, you would just you I would, would believe. You know, I would uh, think. But I mean, as long as they made it something that 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 we would get excited about, as long as they didn't just piss them out there, you know, but actually like put some thought. Well, that's just it. Arrow, Arrow has yet to piss anything. No, out no, there, I know, so. no. But that's why I was saying, if anybody's going to do it, I mean, I would be, I would happily see their, you know, if something for them, you know, I agree. They I want agree. It. Um, but his idea is an interesting one. It's a little daunting at the same time what he's what he's suggesting doing. But you yeah. know, it's it's like a, um, but it it you know it it, it may be a service that that uh, Nashi fans would 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 like us to you know to to, it's, to get, it's, get it's, it's it's a good idea and it's something we're gonna have to yeah. give some thought to. And it might be something that we don't necessarily do like one big podcast or even two big podcasts to yeah. focus just on it, but maybe. Uh, um, a little bit at a time over the next yeah. several podcasts. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. It's not a yeah. bad idea. No, it's pretty good. And uh, uh, while we're talking about DVDs, before I read this last mail, I just want to say right quick uh, that, because uh, I think I mentioned this a few podcasts back and I didn't have any clearer information on it, that there were going to be a couple of new Francos coming out on Blu-ray. And, and, and yeah. now I know what the, yeah, the Severin Films has uh, just released on Blu-ray uh, uh, Vampiris Lesbos and also uh, She Killed in Ecstasy on Blu-ray from Severin. So I'm pretty excited about those. Uh, wanna pick, yeah, I think, they, I, think um, I think another couple are in the pipeline. Right, I think, I, I think I even remember, after I that, there's something else. I do so. believe Roddick Wright's a Frankenstein... Or am I misremembering? And mm-hmm. don't, don't take that. That's mm-hmm. me. That's me off the cuff. I can't really remember. So okay. Um, anyway, so one more email and one more message, and this is uh, from Mark. And he says, and this is titled actually Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. So it's reaction to our most recent Kaiju cast. He says, "Hello, gents. Belated thanks for your Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster podcast." Wait a minute. You, wait, wait. you said Kaiju cast. That's, I, that's well. Actually... It's not confused. Right? There is a Kaiju. <laughs> our cast on our show about controversial <laughs> Kaiju. That's right. There is a Kaiju There's cast. There's a Kaiju cast. Which and is a, uh, we, whole other yes, podcast. it is. Sorry, we don't want to apologize to those guys and congratulate them on uh, they got uh, a honorable mention or came in second or third place in the Rondos for best. Uh, Multimedia, so good podcast. Yeah. So anyway, yes, not to be confused with. Yes, he's talking about our controversial kaiju uh, series. He says I've mentioned to you recently. I've been getting heavily into Godzilla films recently, and I've managed to pick this one up on the cheap from Amazon. Now I've only seen four or five Godzilla films, but I'm worried that he's he's talking about Godzilla versus the small monster. monster, Yes. He says now I've only seen four or five Godzilla films, but I'm worried that I might have already seen the most enjoyable one. So don't get me wrong, I'm fairly sure there are many better Godzilla films out there, but for straight-up <laughs> wackiness, this is surely the one to beat. Uh, and, yes. Yes, and despite its bizarre logic and gaping plot holes, there's plenty to admire about this film. It looks beautiful, much of the model work and monster battles are excellent, and the film is certainly never boring. My eldest son wandered in and while I was watching it, and he absolutely loved it. He even found the smog monster scary. He what, says, oh, do we, I wish I... Mark, how old is this son? I'm just yeah. curious. What? How yeah. old? He, how How old is he? You say he's your old, your eldest. I'm yeah. just, I'm just wondering how old is he. So. Yeah, yeah. He says uh, I've also picked up a copy of Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, which was excellent, and I have Destroy All Monsters on order. 
Hell, I even picked up a DVD of the animated series, but I think I should have left that one in the past. <laughs> yeah, the uh, uh, he's there's talking. a part of me wants to rewatch some of that just for the hell. Yeah, of it. well, it's you know I remember of course when it came out, and of course I was absolutely glued to the set. Although even at the time, you know, it's like okay, this could have been better, but it was Godzilla. It was a cartoon. I mean, I was yeah. going to watch it. Uh, you know, there are parts with it didn't suck. We you know we we won't mention a certain comical character that was in it, but every uh, that was during yeah. the era when every single yeah. cartoon had to have a comic relief. Character <coughs> Scrappy Doo, yeah, exactly the Scrappy Doo of, of yeah, curse. So the, the, the Scrappy Doo effect, the, yeah. sh- the shitification yeah. well, of well, Saturday well, morning. Cartoon. Well, and just the whole sheer lunacy, the fact that Scooby Doo apparently needed a comic relief sidekick when he like the Sco- comic exactly. Relief. Like Scooby Doo wasn't uh, Shaggy weren't funny enough that we had to have Scrappy Doo. For- <laughs> it's like come on, <laughs> damn it. Uh-huh. Um, he mentioned Sea Monster. Yeah, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster is one that I I really need to. Uh, to rewatch before long because it's probably one of the Godzilla films I've seen the least. I saw it a lot later. Like I didn't see it until until I was in my teens, and I remember at the time, like I've always kind of felt that I was. I've never been too knocked out with the film. It does have the great. I don't. I don't like that one too much. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a little slow. I think at times or something. But I, but at the same time, because I watched it so little, I mean, I think I maybe seen it just like once or twice. Which for me, a Godzilla film, that's really unusual. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of due to to check it out again. But uh, okay. Anyway, he says. Uh, one question that you might be able to help me with. There are a lot of Kaiju Blu-rays available, and I'm thinking of trying a few non-Godzilla, non-Godzilla movies. In particular, there are two four-movie Gamera sets and a three-movie Dimension collection. Do either of you own any of these? As far as I can see, both the Gamera's are one-disc set, so I'm kind of dubious about the picture quality, but they are cheap and pretty well-reviewed on Amazon. Who um, finishes up. Anyway, thanks for your sterling efforts. You've certainly made a Godzilla fan out of me. Cheers, Mark. Okay. Yes, I can actually definitely recommend those those Gamera sets. Um, now the, blu- you, the Blu-ray sets, yes. Because now the thing about it is that you might have been daunted by the fact that it was put up by Mill Creek, but Mill Creek has actually stepped up their game a little bit in the last. They used to be kind of associated, sort of with um, was it Alpha Video, the kind of thing like where you know, yeah, you might pay five bucks for it, but it's going to be a crappy, you know, copy. Yeah. Like, but but actually, Mill Creek now has started issuing some pretty good uh stuff uh very good uh representations now the thing about the gamma dvds is they first came out you can still get them the dvds that shout factory came out with which you know they're dvds right. but they came out with the entire run of gamma the first eight films which you know uh for the films themselves i mean i i you know i recommend going through them if you like kaiju films i mean with each gamma film it gets to be more and more a case of diminishing returns and more and more Use of stock, stock footage. footage. But it's important to watch the Gamera films because, as you'll hear us talking about a lot on our controversial Kaiju podcast, the Gamera films had a huge influence on the direction of the Godzilla series. Um, and the first two or three Gamera films especially are really very well done and very enjoyable. Um, the Shout Factory DVDs are worth you know getting because the first, well, at least the first two have audio commentaries and they have some nice little extras. The thing about the Mill Creek Blu-ray collections, you get all, you know, on the two volumes, you get all eight of the first run of Gamera films. You don't get any extras, including you don't get those audio commentaries. However, I can attest to they look terrific. I mean, these films are very colorful and look beautiful anyway. And the Blu-rays that Mill Creek put out, uh, for the price they're asking for them, are definitely worth it. So I recommend them. Same with the Dimagen films. The Dimagen films are a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoy them. You enjoy? Do you watch the? Have you? Ever oh yeah, watched the I haven't, I think I haven't the watched them Dim- in a long time. I have that Blu-ray. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't watched the Dimagen films since I picked up the Blu-ray. But I did watch them when they came out on yeah. DVD back in the night. I guess it was the nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. yeah, really enjoyed those films. Although it 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 it, 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 it was funny that uh, both films that, that in all three of those Dimagen films, 
that I imagine comes to life at exactly the one hour mark. Oh, yeah, it's amazing how it's just, well, they're all three are basically the same plot. All three yeah, of those yeah, films yeah. are basically, but they're, but they're just really beautiful to look at and really fun movies. And the Dalmatian himself is, is just a great creature. Um, also, uh, Mark, I will tell you that uh, if you haven't seen the 90s Gamera films, the three films, the Gamera trilogy that came out in the 90s, they are also in Blu-ray, and I can't recommend those highly enough. Yes, uh, those are three fantastic mm-hmm. giant monster films. They're 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 great. The Gamera films made in the nineties are are they start out good and get better and better. They're mm-hmm. good. And once again influence the Godzilla series as we will see with uh I guess yep. we can go ahead and talk about what's up next. What's up next? That's right. Next month, folks, uh we are going to uh go back to the bloody pit and we will be uh putting out another controversial kaiju episode. You'll have to uh go over to the bloody pit to pick up that episode. Uh, we are going to be covering. Uh, God- Give me a few minutes to say oh, this title. Oh, here, here's <laughs> See the if you title. can do it. Okay, it's Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidra, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. That's right. So but that's- for mercy's sake, we're going to call it GMK for short. <laughs> yes, and that film came out in I think 2001. Yes, and it was directed by the man who directed this trilogy of Gamera films we were just talking about. And so, uh, yeah. and we're going to talk about this film. Now, this film is pretty pretty highly regarded. However, we're considering it part of the controversial. Kaiju cat, you know, podcast series that we're doing uh, because uh, of the very of, of how it twists the whole Godzilla mythology and it basically turns it completely on its head. You know, the whole Godzilla's backstory and what he represents and everything. So it's going to be fun to delve into that uh, and 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 how it how it chooses to do its own particular take on the Godzilla. Yeah, and story. until and until you brought it up wanting to do it as part of this controversial kaiju series, I wasn't aware that it was particularly controversial mm-hmm. because I just thought it was a kick-ass Godzilla yeah, movie. Yeah, and it I is and it. it is it does in general get pretty favorable uh it is viewed pretty favorably among Godzilla fans, you know, but I think it's just one of those films that really just is is such an out of left field and it's and a lot of its ideas, uh, you know, and what it tries to do. I just think it's it it, it makes for I think I think it just stirs a lot of uh, you could it's one that's can stir a lot of conversation. So uh. okay, okay. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. I, that, mm-hmm. That's just it. Uh, since mm-hmm. we've been doing these uh, these Godzilla podcasts, uh, it's occurred to me that there's not many of the mm-hmm. Godzilla series from the jump that couldn't be considered controversial in yeah. some picky yeah. way amongst yeah. Fans. There, there's a, so. there's a, just a two or three that are sort of everybody kind of regards as classics, you know, yeah. which are like the first Gojira and basically the first Mothra film, you know, Mothra versus Godzilla, known here as Godzilla versus the Thing. Uh, are kind of the ones that just across the board you rarely run into people who don't consider those like two of the best ever you know but once you get past that I mean every Godzilla film has its you know I mean even the you know has 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 its its detractors and its champions so you're right I mean in, in a lot of ways they're all fair game for uh, you know for discussing and, and breaking down and we just might that's do it cool. before cool. we do it all before it's over well that's what we'll be doing next month in uh, in June we talk Godzilla again my mm. God the 21st century Godzilla come to think of it yeah that's right so. Uh, that's what's up next month for us, which means we'll be taking a month off from uh, the Nashy cast and the Beyond Nashy stuff. But then, of course, in July, we'll be roaring back with another Nashy film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we could probably go ahead and tell people what that's going to be. Considering... That's your goal. You're yeah, going, yeah, let's go, go ahead and do it. it. Uh, the the Nashy film that we're going to cover in um, two months, not in June, but in July, is a film from 1975 called Dr. Justice. It's uh, apparently a film directed by a French director, uh, Christine Jacques, and uh, it stars not just Paul Nashi, but uh, John Philip Law and yeah. Gert Frobe. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, that would be uh, that'd be Goldfinger and mm-hmm. and Diabolic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, in two months in July, we'll be covering the Nashi film Doctor Justice from 1975 with a very interesting cast. Mm-hmm. We have no idea how much Paul Nashi's in this film, as as will nope. be the case with most of these remaining Nashi films we're going to delve into. But it sounds like hey, you can't go wrong with John Philip Law in it as well. It sounds like it's going to be a fun. Yeah, fun exactly. Night. It's going to at least be worth seeing. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, next month we return to Godzilla. A month after that, Dr. Justice from 1975 for the Nashi cast. And so uh, we hope that everybody will stick around and enjoy what we're going to do. Yeah. And uh, as always, uh, find us on Facebook, like our Facebook page, send us messages there. Send us messages to uh, NashiCast at gmail.com. Contribute a little cash to us if you can to help us keep things going, if you can spare anything. Tuck some some money in the tip jar, folks. Mm -hmm. It's always appreciated. That should really have been something you said. You're the musician, man. <laughs> <laughs> Tip the band. That's right. <laughs> uh, always, we always say, like, you know, we'll play a certain, we'll play any song you want if you throw a 20 in the tip jar. So we, we could be like, we'll discuss any movie you want if you throw a 20 at the, in the, uh, in the <laughs> podcast fund. <laughs> careful, careful. You careful get into, what we You get, you get into a position where people well, will actually. Well, you know these people. They'll send us all these suck ass, but they'll be like, you know, no, yeah, we no, want to no, hear no, you talk about this miserable film <laughs> that we know just to hear you, just to hear you torture you. Well, here's what's horrible is they know if they just write to us, they don't have to pay us a dime and we'll talk about whatever the hell they write us about. <laughs> That's true. Jesus, we, we're not, we're not, we haven't really thought this through. You give us money and we'll talk about what you want to. You're clever. (laughs) We're just not that damn bright. We got, we were, we've been giving it away. (sighs) Damn it. Suckered again by Mm. our, our, our fatal lack of forethought. (laughs) Well, all right, folks, we will see you guys again next week. Uh, Next week. Shit. I wish. We'll see you guys again next month over on. Yeah, the we're not one of those podcasts, you know. So yeah, no, 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 we we can't we can't do that. We're we're old men. We get we get winded just thinking about movies, <laughs> much less talking about them. So uh, thank you guys once again for listening yes. and downloading. And uh, I guess you had to download to listen, so I said that in the wrong order. But I'm babbling mm. now. So mm. once again, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. Have a good summer, folks. Mm.